This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at govx.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register, and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 5.11 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. Welcome, guys, to episode 351 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Earl Granville. Now, Earl is a veteran of the Army National Guard, serving in Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He lost a leg in an IED explosion, 
and his twin brother to suicide. So an incredibly heart-wrenching and powerful story. Yet on the other side, he now joins Team Oscar Mike. He works with Operation Enduring Warrior. He has run for Congress. So a shining example of overcoming adversity and doing good in the world. Before we get to that interview, like I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating makes us more and more visible for people looking for a project like this. And this is a free resource, a free library for you, the audience, whether individually, whether within your organization. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible stories of these amazing men and women. So with that being said, I introduce to you Earl Granville. Enjoy. Earl, welcome to Ocala. Ah, James, thanks for having me. Thank you. And just just so everyone can understand the lengths you went to to do this interview face-to-face, where did you drive from? I drove from Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's quite a drive. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so let's start at the very beginning then. Uh, sure. Where were you born? And then tell me your family dynamic, what mm-hmm. your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in uh, Carbondale, Pennsylvania, just outside of Scranton, uh, Lackawanna County, like northeastern area. Um, and yeah, I felt like I had a a normal childhood, you know, every, I feel like families have their rise and falls all throughout the country. And, uh, you know, there's some bad upbringings, some good upbringings. My, my father's a roofer, um, and my mother, she worked at uh, Lockheed Martin. Um, and yeah, my, my twin brother, Joe and I were the youngest and had four half, uh, half siblings. Uh, Greg and Al and Patty and Chris, they were, they were older, but I didn't look at them as like half siblings to me. They were my brothers and sisters, just like Joe. So, but yeah, it was, I feel like normal childhood, uh, played sports, uh, did some karate. Uh, um, my Joe and one of my friends, they started the soccer team in Carbonelle area. And I was actually excited about that because I played a season of football and there was too much politics. I feel like. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, just like, you know, the coach and, uh, you know, coach's son was the MVP and all mm-hmm. his little, you know, it's so clicky sometimes, you know, that I just thought, ah, I'm going to waste my afternoons of something that I appreciate a lot more, you know? Yeah. And then uh, I found that in soccer. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, became a defender and, you know, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Left yeah. back or right back? I was right back. Right back. Yep. So I'm left legged, so I was left back. Oh, yeah? And, and also, I was left back because I'm terrible with dribbling. So, yeah. <laughs> I was good at running people over and getting the ball from them. Yeah, I was sweeper for a little bit and uh, even goalie. So, I was always in the back. Which is, And my brother and my cousin Paul, they were always in the front, like right. scoring goals. And I was like, hey, guys. You know? <laughs> well, we talked a little bit before we start recording about some of us bringing trauma or baggage into professions that we'll get into the profession in a minute. Sure. Is there anything looking back that you would identify as, as something you could label traumatic or was it pretty good? Um, I wouldn't call it good. I mean, I think traumas as a child, having an alcoholic father, you know, it was definitely difficult and, you know, walking on eggshells all the time and screaming from your parents back and forth all the time. And, um, and I grew up resenting my old man a little bit and just the way how he acted quite a bit. And, um, 
you know, it's, nothing was ever his fault, I feel like. And he was just looking for reasons. And, and I think that affected a little bit. And as I got older, it's weird because how I portrayed my old man and how he treated people, you, you kind of think that's a norm. So then you treat people that way, especially relationships I was in growing up, you know, girlfriends I had and stuff like that. And it's very unhealthy, you know, the way how I treated them, talked down upon them. And, um, and there's other things as well. I, you know, we could get into that at some other time, but definitely, uh, you know, I, but I mean, when it comes to, you know, school, I was, I guess I was an average student, you know, I'm, I, I, I was never on the honor roll, but I never was failing either. So I was like in between and, you know, I had a good amount of friends like in the middle. So, right. Yeah, now you good. mentioned karate. Was that a lot of people start because they feel small or bullied or is it just because karate is also very cool, especially when you're a I think kid. when I was a kid, believe it or not, I watched the Ninja Turtles a lot. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I did like two years of that, but uh, we didn't have a lot of money growing up and it was a lot of money. Uh, when we we're kids, so you know, my parents had to back out of it. So it said you can't do it anymore. I'm like, hey, you do what you got to do, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, then, what about career aspirations when you were actually school age? When I was in school, believe it or not, I want to be a veterinarian. My dad was a vet. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that was a big thing I wanted to do. Um. Well, I think to pay for college. Um. I wasn't sure if that was a route I wanted to stick with. I mean, I just love animals. Um, but uh, when uh, my senior year of high school, my brother Joe and my cousin Paul were talking about joining the military. And believe it or not, James, I wanted nothing to do with that. Like, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not working for the government. That was my attitude at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I was big into music, so like the punk rock scene, oh, work for the government, you know. <laughs> and I remember this anti-flag song, Die for Your Government. And that's all I always thought about, like, when it came to the military. I mean, just that little punk rock attitude I had, you know what I mean? But um, what drawn me into it, joining the military, was a free education. I thought, well... Maybe I could get something out of this, all right? And that was my mindset at the time. I didn't go in with taking it seriously. I thought to myself, oh, I'll just do my minimal contract and get out, you know. And um, I joined the infantry only because my brother was like, what are you doing? So I'm going to be in uh, infantry. I don't even know what the infantry was. I was like, it was basically, what are you doing? Because that's what I'm going to do. That's exactly how it went. So I joined the Pennsylvania Army National Guard as infantrymen. Uh, graduated high school, had a good summer. We landed in Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training September 1st, 2001. Not knowing that 10 days later. <laughs> yep, exactly. So yeah, I got to tell you, when those towers got hit, we're in 30th AG in processing for basic training. Any of you guys who were infantrymen in the Army know 30th AG and... Um, and it was, I just thought to myself, man, well, I guess this isn't about uh, college education anymore. It's something much bigger. So when we graduated boot camp, um, we got orders for Bosnia shortly after. And anybody out there familiar with the Bosnian conflict that was going on? The time we got there was 2002. We had a train up in Germany, train up at Fort Drum, 40 in Town Gap. And... Uh, the history of Bosnia, the Bosnian conflict. It's uh, like a little civil war. I wouldn't even call it a civil war. It was just 
you know, there was genocide against the Muslim community over there. And in 92 to 95, it was when it was really, really bad over there. I mean, um, there's a movie, Welcome to Sarajevo, um, in the land of blood and honey. I read a book called Love Thy Neighbor by Peter Moss. And it was, I mean, next to, next to, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, you know, Auschwitz and, uh, you know, what Nazis were doing to the Jews. I mean, it's obviously the numbers weren't as big, but I mean, the way how these people were just mutilated and, and treated, you know, just because of their beliefs. And it was, it's just unbelievable. And like, it's funny because I didn't know anything about Bosnia or anything about this when I was getting ready to deploy there. So when I bought this book and I read it, kind of opened my eyes a little bit. Right. And I realized, you know, but it was always called, it was a peacekeeping mission. Right. So it's not like bullets are flying. And, you know, out of all of us there, I don't think anybody shot one round. There was nobody. There was no casualties. All right. Like there's no Purple Hearts. It was the time we were there in 2002. NATO really had a hand in everything going on there. And we were just there having a presence, making sure the fighting didn't pick back up. And it's funny, the interpreters we worked with, uh, the locals we worked with, they all said the same thing. It seems like us as the Americans. Now, there was other forces over there. We were with the French. We were with Canadians. Um, you know, so there was other uh, governments in the world over there with their hands in this, their, their armed forces. But the locals and our interpreters all said the same thing. It seemed like when the Americans leave, this is going to kick back up. So, I mean, their faith in us was pretty high, which kind of made me proud a little bit to be, you know, United States in the United States Army. I thought that was pretty neat always hearing that. Not these other forces, but if the Americans leave, we're done. Well, Grant, I think we were the third last rotation over there and we ended up did leaving. And from my understanding, I never picked back up, which is good. Yeah. That's the last thing you want to see happen in the world. I mean, it's just horrible, horrible what was going on, you know. So... Just just staying on, sorry to interrupt, just staying on Bosnia for a moment because that's that's a kind of a ray of light, as it were. So we saw, I remember, you know, back in England, we had great news outlets. We had the BBC, even as a, a, a kid, we had a thing called John Craven's News Round, which was aimed at children, but it was like the BBC. So we learned about, you know, which nations were going through famine, which nations were going through war, so that you weren't shielded from... You know the reality of some of these these things going on, and also be a huge amount of fundraising and that kind of thing. So it was very positive. But I remember seeing the horrendous genocide. And when Sebastian Junger that came on the show, he was attached to one of the units when it was still going on, when they were sniping civilians, when they were trying to get from from you know one side of the city to the other. On Sarajevo. Uh, yes, I believe so. Yes. Um. So, just as as a, as an optimistic lens, what did you see after the genocide? After these these you know, religions had been, well, one religion be murdering another. A few years later, what did the city look like by the time you were there? So I spent one day in Sarajevo. That was it. Um, I spent a lot of my time right outside of uh, Tuzla. Um, boy, what was our base called? It was a big U.S. base there. Um, Eagle Base is what it was called. Um, I spent a lot of time there. So, but that... Um, to go back to Sarajevo, it was literally like we went on a tour to Sarajevo to tell you exactly what our deployment in Bosnia was like. Like I said, a lot of the fighting was gone, like, um, and we were pretty much safe. But um, I remember seeing it was, it was pretty pretty unique because here we are going into Sarajevo. You see the 
you see the torch, you see the 1984 Olympic rings. So like less than a decade before this all started, the uh, the Winter Olympics were there. Mm-hmm. And these mass, mass graveyard of just, you know, it kind of puts a little perspective of how many people were killed over there. Mm-hmm. And, and it seemed like people were... Um, like they, they seem to enjoy our presence, you know, like, you know, future deployments, it wasn't always like that, but I feel like, um, you know, it was definitely, it was from what I witnessed in Sarajevo, just that one day. And I'm like getting off a tour bus on a tour bus in my uniform, like it's to tell you what, to paint a picture of this deployment, it wasn't that bad at all. But, um, other, my, that was my personal aspect of it. My brother, on the other hand, he was in a different platoon in Bosnia. He actually got to one of those mass grave sites. Not a, like I saw the big graveyard in Sarajevo. He was at like mass grave sites of like, and, um, some of my other friends over there and they said they'll never forget the smell of what, you know, if you guys aren't familiar, if, like you gotta go see these movies, man. Like uh, Welcome to Sarajevo, or um, very briefly, uh, movie with uh, Owen Wilson behind enemy lines. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 not so much a story, but it takes place in Bosnia and Max grave sites and stuff like that. And you know, luckily, I I say luckily, but we didn't have to you know endure all the beginning of it where where it witnessed the genocide and all the dead bodies or anything like that. You know. So, I mean, it, like I said, it was towards the end of this whole of NATO even having their footprint in there. Okay. So, like, we didn't have to endure all that bad, any of that bad stuff. So, uh, nice, easy tour. You know, people enjoyed seeing us. I mean, I was, I was 19 when I was over there and myself and another young private, we were asked to go on a radio show in the village of Cladange and it was the two of us and our interpreter people would actually call in and ask what life was like in America just to paint a picture on this deployment like you know what I mean it was yeah. it was it was no danger to us whatsoever Stark contrast yeah. of what was to come yeah you know yeah. like so a really cool deployment came back in March of 03 back to stateside and then I started to get my uh, college education at Lackawanna College in Scranton Pennsylvania and uh, I got two semesters in and learned a lot just from that deployment. A little perspective on life and everything, but my mind was still at this aspect of I'm still going to do my minimal contract and get out of the army. Right mm-hmm. now, how did that framework or that that mindset um, affect you as a soldier? Because you know you get some that are absolute gung ho. Some people being on here, you know, the moment they could talk, it was you know. Get me a toy gun. I'm going to practice what I'm going to do. And then others, they were like, you know, when the towers hit, I went from wanting to be profession X to a soldier. But I mean, obviously, there are a lot of men and women out there that the education is an incentive, definitely. So did it at that point, did it affect you as far as training and, and um, you know, the um, ambition is the wrong word, but your your motivation as a soldier? Or were you able to still have those two parallels yes i'm here for the education but yes i'm owning the position as well well i definitely wanted to be a liked soldier i think everybody likes that you know if you don't mind are we allowed to curse or anything mm-hmm. you know oh, the yeah. term Go we always it. use is <laughs> <laughs> fuck yeah um i didn't want to be a shitbag per se you know anybody who wore the uniform know exactly what i talked about like last thing i wanted to be the shitbag i'm gonna do my job i was well liked by my peers uh you know my 
uh, I guess you could say my, my NCOs, my squad, you know, I was, I was a likable guy. Um, and I, I did my job. Now, on the other hand, if we're going to discuss this, my brother, he was like, he was that gung ho dude. Um, he was very well noticed within our company. He was always on top of things. He would go, always go that extra mile. And meanwhile, I was just your regular kind of normal guy. Just, uh, I want to say just making a buy, like just doing what I had to do as a soldier. That was it. Right. You know, so it was, uh, I, I didn't stick out or anything like that. But I think, you know, with these experiences like you were discussing, like my perspective was different. It made me proud to be an American, believe it or not. Like I just like born in the country we live in now. Like I, I just felt like, you know, I can't imagine something like this, like these genocides happening over in, you know, U.S. soil. You know what I mean? The, the fact that that was going on for three years and it took NATO and the U.N. that long to kind of put their foot in the door and try to slow it down really blows my mind. Like three years that was going on. That's unbelievable. You know what? That, I mean, I feel like that would never happen here, you know, and hopefully it never does happen here. Yeah. Well, and it, was, it was weird. I had a realization a while ago. I've talked about this before, but I'm 46 now. I was born in 74. So less, a lot less than my lifetime now prior to my birth was when that was happening in Germany, you know, or, or Poland and, you know, the surrounding areas so it's crazy to think that basically our grandparents generation there were countries where that was happening in in europe in you know developed europe so it's one thing with rwanda where there's tribal problems and you know it's a little bit more detached but yeah when it happens in in you know what we consider more developed quote-unquote countries and really? it's again it's happening for years and years and years Unbelievable. Un under the noses of a lot of people in those countries i'm not pretending mm -hmm. that the whole country knew about it i'm sure they didn't but yeah it's right. it's horrendous right you know i think you would never think something like that would happen in western nations so i mean i think about the bosnian conflict that was it's that wasn't even 30 years ago mm -hmm. like so to to think to think about that happening in our lifetime it is kind of it's it's amazing it know? is it's 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 unfortunate you know and uh you know there's evil in this world what are you gonna do mm -hmm. now just to get because i know iraq was kind of like the next place when you guys were deployed in bosnia the towers had just fallen in new york what was the feeling of you not being sent to where we were told the the people behind it were located well i think back to my mindset at the time I was like, oh, we're not like at, we knew what we were getting into in Bosnia at that. Like in the beginning, it was uh, um, like I said, after little education on what was going on in the Bosnian conflict, the time we were going over there, we were even briefed like, you know, the, the, the heavy stuff is pretty much done. And I'll be honest, with you, my mindset at that time was like, oh, good, man, we're not, we're not really going to war or anything like that. You know, ah, I don't need to be put in harm's way and believe me, that was my mindset as a 19 year old little punk in the army as a private it's like ah, i don't need to go over there you know well and that brings us to my next deployment was we got a warning order for iraq in 2004 and but being that we're national guard the way how it works is because we just got back from a deployment we're not it's not mandatory for us to go to Iraq. Everybody who didn't go to Bosnia was going to Iraq. But you could volunteer. So Joe volunteered. And I was going to stay back, but because he put his hat in the ring, I was like, God forbid if something happened to him and I'm at home, 
I decided to, uh, you know what? I'm going to put my big boy pants on and I'm going to volunteer as well. And let me tell you, James, that was the best decision I have ever made. Honest to God. You know, when I first joined the military, I felt like my mindset, what is this doing for, what can I get out of this? Okay. Oh, free education. That sounds great. I'll do the minimum and call it a day. See you later and get out of the military. Boom. That's it. Going to Iraq. I realize it's not about me. It's about us. And I don't, you know, and yes, it's for my country, but I think in those situations we're at over there, the camaraderie, like us, I mean, my platoon and my squad. And it made me love wearing the uniform. I became an NCO and became a sergeant, so I have more responsibilities. And I just loved what I did. And I knew that year in Western Iraq made me love the Army. And I knew this is a job I always wanted to do. This is a job I, I'm sorry, this is a job I want to do for the rest of my life. Oh, really? Yeah. So it changed your thing. Now, what yeah. about Joe? I mean, you know, he was gung-ho. He got to finally be out in, in Iraq. Did he have that same sense of camaraderie with the, with the men as well? Mm-hmm. And I think he, Joe was, Joe was, he was just a natural leader. He excelled in his career a lot quicker than I did. He was promo- He was always promoted before I was. Um, it's just who he was. He was um, very well known by other people. Uh, I remember even going to the chow hall in Iraq. Joe got promoted to sergeant before I did. And I remember walking to the chow hall, and we're twins, by the way. So somebody says to me, didn't you just get promoted? And I looked, I rolled my eyes like, no, that's my twin brother. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize he had a twin. And the, and that was it. And I was like, oh, nice to meet you, douchebag. Like, the <laughs> he didn't even tell you either. They didn't Thanks, even acknowledge. Dick. Like, <laughs> And it just made me laugh. Like, you know, and I didn't know who this guy was, but obviously maybe Joe made an impression on him. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, Joe, he just stayed the same. You know, that gung-ho dude just doing what he has to do. You know, and it's funny because... We were in two different platoons, and there's three platoons total. So they would, every time, maybe my platoon and Joe's platoon would work together, which wasn't a lot, but there was a few times they did. We weren't allowed to go outside the wire on the same mission at the same time. God forbid something happened, right? So one of us would stay back, and it was always me. So I'd be... I'd be radio bitch in the talk, you know, doing the radio checks with everybody. I always think of the movie Super Troopers, man, Farva. I'm like, yep, I'll be Farva today, you know, like on the radio. <laughs> but it's, um, and it, but at the time he was a sergeant and I was a specialist and, you know, he's valued more. And it's funny because his platoon would do these long convoys first. And I guess Joe's job was searching these tractor trailers driven by third world nationals because on these long convoys we would bring the these drivers who they didn't have security clearance like some others they had very low security clearance so we had to search their vehicles we had to you know escort them to their staging area uh when we would leave or when we would get to our destination and pack their tractor trailers up with supplies and come back to wherever we're going well when my platoon got put on convoys, I would I was asked to search the vehicles with an interpreter and talk to them and everything like that. And they were so standoffish, right? 
and with me and I'm like, I said, I can't remember our interpreter's name, but I said, I was, these guys always like this. And the interpreter who was working with my brother's platoon said, they think you're his brother. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, well, your brother was a dick to these guys. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm not like, like, I'm not here to be a prick. You know what I mean? Like, and they're not going to believe the twin story either. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know? so I like, I try to be more of a laid back goofball with these guys. Like, um, you know, like relax, man, relax. Let's just search your vehicle make sure you got nothing bad, nothing, no contraband, no freaking radios where you're calling, you know, an insurgent out to put a V bit out there. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. Um, you know, I just, I want to make this as painless, but also stern and painless as possible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where Joe was just a hard ass. Like it's, we're just, we're, we were horrible twins, man. Like it's just, <laughs> our personalities are so different. <laughs> now, did you have, I meant to ask you this earlier, did you have that twin thing? I mean, I know some of the other kind of, I guess, more famous uh, military twins, like Luttrell twins, you hear about them talking, like I literally sensed when something was wrong. Did, did you ever have any of that or... I'll get to that later. Okay. All we right. had one incident. Brilliant. Well, then we'll, we'll lead through. So then a, a, a different thing that I like to ask all the military, because as a non-military person myself, I think it's very important for us, you know, the civilian population to understand the difference between the politics that send you out there and what you guys see with your own eyes. And I'm amazed at the stories I hear from all these different branches um, that put in perspective then what they're doing, regardless of what initiated that. So having been in Bosnia, thankfully not seeing atrocities taking place, were there any kind of things that jarred you when you first got to Iraq that made you realize, okay, there are amongst these great Iraqi men and women, there are some real horrible people that we need to hunt down? Well, from, uh, believe it or not, in Iraq, being that we did a lot of convoys, we didn't have to get out there with the nitty gritty with a lot of people, like a lot of the locals. Once in a while we did. Um, you know, one convoy, we would have the scouts ahead of us and they would be scouting like we'd go under bridges so they would get there first, make sure there's no IEDs or anything there, right? Well, all of a sudden we would roll up on a dead body, right? And the scouts didn't call it in, which tells us somebody just put that there. So it was a little security hall. We had to make sure there's no, there's not a bomb in the body and shit like that. And um, so we pulled over. We found his ID. He looked like he was a local police officer, and he had a you know shot right in the head. And you know we would know that there's people out there that want to harm. We don't know if it's a message or whatever it may be, but there's people obviously out there that want to harm us, you know, and just harm, you know, maybe a local government. You know, like I said, he was a police officer, so whatever it may be. So we, I mean, this is now 2005, 2006. There's obviously a threat out there. Now, I also have to add, we were in Al-Assad, Iraq, my company, where the rest of our battalion was in uh, Ramadi. And 0506, Ramadi was very heavy. It's the period that Jocko was there, wasn't it? I believe. Yep. Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, very, very heavy time. And my guys in uh, the 109th Infantry that were in there, I mean, throughout the whole deployment, my platoon, we had one Purple Heart recipient and he had a ruptured eardrum from an IED blast. Like his vehicle got hit. He was a gunner. His ear started bleeding. He got a Purple Heart. Those guys down there was a whole different story. I mean, first it was, uh, 
uh, Sergeant Eric Ostrom, uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania, in August of 2005. He was hit by, uh, he was shot by a sniper. And then September 19, 2005, it was uh, Billy Evans. Their Bradley fighting vehicle hit an IED, and he was driving, and uh, he was, you know, he was gone. And then uh, nine days later, September 28, 2005, one IED took out five soldiers in a, it was a white phosphorus IED, and there's five soldiers in one Bradley. And a Bradley, it's 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 not a tank, but it's got tracks like a tank. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have as much armor as a tank, but it has a lot more armor than a Humvee. One IED took out these guys. Um, it was heavy, man. It was <sighs> PFC Oliver Brown, um, Specialist Lee Wiegand, Sergeant Eric Slobodnik, Sergeant George Puglisi, and Sergeant Daniel, Staff Sergeant Daniel Arnold. They were all killed instantly. And all these vehicles, these Bradleys are tall. And seeing the photos of this vehicle, if I was on one side and you were on the other side of the vehicle, I could, I'd be able to see you. That's how much this vehicle melted. Wow. So the, the bloodshed my brothers and sisters were facing in Ramadi was, uh, look, credit's given where credit's due. It's nothing like we were dealing with an Al-Assad. They were dealing with a lot heavier situations. And, um, you know, just to roll the dice, one company, our company, we needed a company in Al-Assad and that was, our company's one that went there. You know, we were in danger, don't get me wrong, we got into firefights, but, I mean, one purple heart out of my platoon compared to what those guys were facing. Like it's there. That's a huge difference. Let's be real. Yeah. So they're definitely, you know, in, in that, that big day, September 29, 2005, that was fairly early in the deployment. I think we're about three months over there and we have nine months left. So the reality is kicking in here. You know, and I remember going on leave in November and just seeing, you know, going back to northeastern Pennsylvania. Now, I got to remember we're National Guard. So five guys on one day, seven in, you know, in our battalion so far have been killed in little northeastern Pennsylvania. That's a huge toll on a community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and, I had, you know, active duty people come from all walks of life from everywhere. But, you know, I think in a community losing seven people, it's heavy, really heavy. So it's a, you know, a little perspective and, you know, I guard active duty reserves and, you know, I, there's, there are little cultures in each one. I feel like active duty is more trained, more prepared because this is their life every day where we, we're training. We're, we're no longer one week a month, two weeks a year. We train more, especially I think these conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, uh, you know, I guess a big downfall we have is that situation is when these multiple casualties happen. A community is affected big time. Mm-hmm. So it's well, yeah. there's, a, there's a parallel with the fire service. You have a lot of volunteers that live in that town that don't get paid, you know, and they do the same thing. They don't have the same level of training than a career firefighter in a lot of times because they have to work their other jobs too as well. They don't have the funding. So, but yeah, I mean, God forbid you have a catastrophic fire like they had in Charleston, which was a paid department. You know, you could lose five, 10, 15 men and women from that town. And you have to pass that building every day because it's in your town. So yeah, stuff I can imagine. So how did how did how did everyone deal with that? I mean, you know, you've gone from you know 
not losing anyone to that just sudden run. You know, I remember when Ostrom got killed first. I didn't know Ostrom that well, but I remember him in Bosnia. He was a staff sergeant when he got killed. And his father was a first sergeant that was also in Bosnia with him who didn't go to Bosnia. His father didn't go to Bosnia. His father, I believe, was his first sergeant, sergeant major, but he was a little older. Um, so reality kicks in, and then Billy Evans gets killed. Billy Evans, um, w- one of his closest friends, was my bunkmate in Al Assad, Gary Sienko. And there was three people with the last name Evans in that platoon in Ramadi. So we know Evan, one of the Evans got killed. We don't know who it was. So we're, you know, there's Brandon Evans, there's Billy Evans, and I, I can't remember the third Evans. I don't, I didn't know him. So we were, we, we just have to wait to hear what it is. And they don't like to give out too much info because they want to make sure the family knows before, like the way how the military works, the military, you would, we would like, the family to hear it from the military than like some email from somebody. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, and, and, and that's very understandable. You know what I mean? So, I remember I got off duty and I was, uh, I was uh, taking a nap before uh, I had to go back on duty and I was in my bunk and all of a sudden Cianco runs into our, our little hooch and he's bawling his eyes out and I knew right away that it had to be Billy Evans, you know? And that was, you know, that was a bummer. Seeing the pain that Cianco had, you know what I mean? That was that was heavy stuff, man, heavy shit. You know, and then shortly after, uh, Cianco's vehicle hit an ID, and he's the one with a ruptured eardrum who got his Purple Heart. You know, and I remember when a news interview would say, he was like, it's like he was there, man. Like, they were pretty close. So, yeah. you know, really think about it. And, you know, it's starting to hit home, starting to hit home, these uh, these casualties that our guys are dealing with, Ramadi and Sienko had a, you know, not that it was a life-threatening incident, but, you know, things could have gone sideways. Oh, exactly. You know? Yeah. So it's, you know, the reality of it is definitely sinking in. And then I remember when, those five, my five friends who were killed in Ramadi. I was working in the talk at the time. Like I said, I was radio bitch while Joe was outside the wire. And one of the guys in the talk said, five guys got, five guys in the one night just got killed in Ramadi. I'm like, bullshit. Like, come on, man. Like, man, this keeps happening now. You know what I mean? Like, Billy Evans was not even two weeks prior. So, like, this is getting real fucking heavy. Right. And I'm like, well, who are the names? I remember my, my best friend growing up, Dave Rivera, he's in Ramadi. And not like we're getting worried, and um, and my buddy who's I worked in the talk with Jamie White said he says I heard Puglisi was one of them, and like my jaw dropped. Like George uh, Sergeant Staff Sergeant George Puglisi was very very well respected within the 109th, very good at his job. Everybody loved him. He was a guy when it was time to clean the barracks. You know the privates do that shit. Well, he's out there with the broom doing it too. The leader. Um, yeah, exactly. And I, and um, like I said, my buddy Dave, he was in the platoon with him. So when we were in train up in Mississippi, I would go to Dave's barracks. And I got to tell you, his uh, George, or Sergeant Puglisi, his, he either, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, he was either cleaning his weapon or he had his nose in a manual. And he was just bettering himself. And I don't know if this is true. He was up to get promoted to sergeant first class, would make him platoon sergeant, 
which would more logistics than actually outside the wire with the guys. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I could see him doing this. He turned down that promotion because he'd rather be in the thick with the guys. That tells you the type of person he is. Yeah. You know, and it's, um, I got to tell you, um, I mean, a loss is a loss. Everybody knew George. Everybody respected Sergeant Pagliese so much. So it was, you know, um, it was, I mean, I'm not here to rate people. I'm not here to do that. But George is the one everybody knew. Yeah. Every single one of them, you know. And, um, you know, and then we just waited to hear about it. And, you know, if if the intel my buddy was telling me in the talk was true and it was, yeah, you know, it was heavy shit, you know. <sighs> what are you going to do, you know? I mean, it sucks. It really does. It just sucks, you know. Yeah. No, exactly. Well, then, so leave me out of Iraq and into Afghanistan then because... Well, you know, I could go all day about that. So, yeah. So, you know, like I said, on that Iraq deployment, when I when I got promoted to sergeant, I saw the big picture. My guys in 3rd Platoon, uh, Scott Beal, he's one of my best friends on that deployment. I remember um, <laughs> Farrell, our first firefight we got into, Farrell's weapon jammed he had a 50 cal and it's trying to fix instead of trying to fix the 50 cal he reached inside of his humvee and um he had a, an m79 which is like a grenade launcher like a single grenade launch mm-hmm. have you ever seen terminator 2 oh, when oh, he yeah. runs at it when he runs out of bullets in the minigun and then he just picks up this like it's like a it looks like a tiny little rifle with a fat barrel and mm-hmm. he just like shoots a the cop cars and they blow up. It's yeah. exactly what he did. It's like Farrell ran out. And I swear, man, when I watched that movie, like, I've seen that movie my whole life, but watching that movie um, after that Iraq deployment, you know, I think Farrell, he didn't run out of bullets, but it looked like his weapon jammed and he just picks up this M79 and he shoots this fucking truck and the truck just blows up. <laughs> and I just think... It's like you're like freaking Arnold Schwarzenegger up there, dude, man. And I tell him that now. It's like that was so fucking like I was two or three vehicles behind him. I can't remember, but watching all that happen, that was my first firefight too, and that was a taste of like, I want to, man. I love this job. I'm, you know, my adrenaline's pumping, everything, man. And on that deployment, Joe re-upped this contract. I re-upped my contract, and I knew this is a job I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, so came home. I got my associate's degree at Lackawanna College. Another volunteer deployment came up, Afghanistan. I raised my hand. Boom, I'm off. Off I go. Joe, on the other hand, he's still in the Army. He's staying back. Joe's now married, and him and his wife are having a baby. So he's like, I'm not going, and you shouldn't go either. And I'm like, fuck this dude. I'm cutting this cord. Off I go, right? So this is now December 2010 or I'm sorry, December 2007, we're training at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And um, our job in Afghanistan is going to be part of the Providence Reconstruction Team, right? And I'm attached, I'm no longer with the 109th Infantry, I'm attached to the 103rd Armor in the 28th Infantry Division, which is the Pennsylvania National Guard, okay? And in the PRT for short, the PRT is our job. We were going to be security force for these PRTs all over Afghanistan. Each, there's, I, I couldn't tell you how many companies were in the 103rd, but each company is maybe made up of three or four platoons. Each platoon 
is sent to a certain providence where there's a PRT and what their job is, the security force for the core PRT, Providence Reconstruction Team. Their job is help rebuild parts of Afghanistan working with the local government of which maybe the Taliban was destroying or just giving better ways of life. Uh, renovating hospitals, building recreational centers, building schools, um, creating wells for villages so they don't have to travel far for uh, water. So it was more of the humanitarian side of things, which I thought was pretty neat. Yeah. You know, it was definitely um, a lot different than my first two deployments. And, you know, being in the security force, we would escort uh, these uh, civil affair officers from, you know, our base to maybe they would have a meeting with a local uh, local government, maybe a village elder or a mayor or whatever it may be, and discuss uh, what could we do, like well, what happened here. Um, it was pretty neat. You know, sitting down in those meetings, Kavalar comes off, we sit in Indian style, and the female uh, ladies would come out and give us tea, give us bread. You know, uh, definitely a lot different than anything I've ever experienced on this deployment, getting this close with the locals. So it was really, really cool. I, I enjoyed it. And I do this a lot. You know, I, I, when I'm, sometimes when I'm greeted, I put my hand over my heart. And that's what I learned from the Afghans. Ah. Yeah. What's like the it's, symbolism it's a, for that? Is it? It's like, it's like hello. Okay. You know, um, it's, there was a, I'll, I'll get to it later, but um, there's one specific moment where I always remember that. So, like I said, our job is to pack these, Civil affair, the civil affair officers in the army or the air force, or maybe it's U.S. civilian engineers, and take them to point A to point B on these patrols. So, what would happen is um, there was one specific civil affair officer who didn't like to sit in the back seat of the vehicle he was in. He liked to be in charge of the vehicle he was in. That's just what he did. Okay. I saw on my roster. Uh, Major Scott Haggerty is his name. Major Haggerty was going to be in my vehicle. So I knew he was going to take my job as the vehicle commander. All right. And I was either going to be put in the back seat or I was, or somewhere else. So I was, uh, you know, I'll be your gunner today. And my, my original gunner, Craig Rains, I'm going to put him as a passenger in one of the other vehicles. Right. And we're, we're living in Gardez the capital of the Paktia province. And we were heading to a little, uh, I don't know, village or town called Zormont. And Zormont's a pretty heavy area, right? We always heard, I've been to Zormont a few times, but we always heard, uh, we were we shared a base with uh, 101st Airborne. We always hear about Zormont. And every time we go there, nothing happened, but there was always a threat there. That seemed like a heavy spot. Even our presence being there, the Taliban just didn't like us there. All right. The locals didn't like us there because they would, when the locals would work with us, the Taliban would take it out on the locals. So it, there's a little fob there out in, um, in Zormont. So we would camp out there for a few days and just work remotely with the local government every day so we didn't have to drive all the way back to guard it just made more sense we'd fuel up our vehicles clean our weapons and boom off the off we went so with that all being said we went to this site to look at uh, a future site where we're going to build a school okay and getting out there was pretty difficult we had to take these narrow roads a lot of choking points 
you know, where the roads are very narrow, which really could put us in a dangerous situation. We get in a firefight through these, uh, you know, these buildings and stuff like that. So when we got out there, the, our last day of doing this work in Zormont, we decided to take a different road back. And in my vehicle, it's I'm gunning Major Haggerty's uh, TC or the v, uh, Vic, the VC vehicle commander. The back seat is an Afghan sub-governor and specialist Derek Holland is driving. We're leaving this site for the school. And I remember, James, for the first time ever in Afghanistan, on this different route that we're taking, route we'd never taken before, I saw bright green grass for the first time. And I came over the headset and I was like, who the fuck is watering their grass in Afghanistan, right? Like, wow, man, this is beautiful here. Everybody got a laugh out of it, right? The next thing I remember, nothing but black. You know that, you know when you put your head underwater and it's like a faint noise? Like it's not really a noise, it's just like whatever, I don't even know how to say it, but that's the best way I could describe what I was hearing. And I felt a momentum. And in my mind, I'm saying to myself, what the hell is going on right now? Next thing I know, my eyes open up and I'm on the ground big beautiful sky it's like 2.30 in the morning why am I on the ground holy shit my feet are backwards and I'm full of blood the vehicle is completely destroyed to my left we just hit an IED I try to stand up <laughs> obviously it was not happening I had no working weapon. Are we getting ambushed? Is anybody else hurt? And I start to panic a little bit and I'm just watching myself get more red. Like, I'm going to die right here. This is it. You know, it was hard to sit up. I couldn't even assess myself. Finally, my buddy Joe Voda got to me and he said a little prayer over me. And then Lieutenant Naylor got to me and he said, I'll be right back. I have to check on the other guys. And I said to him, which I I regret today, I said, don't let me die here alone. Like, stay with me. And his job isn't to stay with me. His job is to... Triage. Yep. Mm -hmm. Our medic got to me. Air Force Tech Sergeant, Sergeant uh, Doc Jones, we called him. Doc Jones got to me and he's working on me. Put some pressure dressing on my left, my right leg. And I was like, Doc, how's the other guys? They're good. We're working on them. We're working on them. Puts some pressure, pressure dressing on me. I'm still going. He puts a tourniquet on my leg and I'm still bleeding, but it slowed down. Him and some of the other guys, uh, Senior and Stone, uh, one of the Afghan police officers out with us, they put me on a litter and they carried me behind one of the bigger vehicles for cover in case we got ambushed. That's my guess anyway. When they carried me over there, they walked me right past two body bags. And that was Major Haggerty, Major Scott Haggerty of Stillwater, Oklahoma, and Specialist Derek Holland. Derek just turned 20 years old. I'm 24 at this time. I feel like I've experienced a lot in my life. But, you know, he's just a kid. And that was heavy, you know. 
So Doc gave me a shot of morphine. He put some quick clot on my right leg to finally stop the bleeding. And I hear the chopper coming. And that's a medevac. They carry me in a chopper, the Black Hawk. They put me on. I remember grabbing Voda, Sergeant Voda, my buddy. I grabbed his body armor and I pulled him in and gave him a kiss on the cheek. Um, and it didn't leave right away. They put somebody else on as well. Uh, that Afghan governor that was in the back seat, he lived as well. Because of who he is, like he had his own vehicles as well, his own like Afghan security that were in other vehicles in our convoy. So one of these cops also, he wasn't hurt. He got on the medevac chopper as well, just to be, continue to be his escort, to be his personal security. And on this helicopter ride, he's laying to my right and all I wanted to do was kind of look up at my legs and I hear this guy moaning and moaning. He looked 10 times worse than me. I got to be honest. And he's also older than me. I don't I To this day, I don't know if he survived or not, but I, we made, we both made it to our destination alive. But, um, I don't give a shit what your faith is. I don't care what your, what your, uh, you know, what I say this with respect, what invisible man you believe in. I don't give a fuck about any of that at that moment. I just took my hand and I grabbed his and I squeezed it. And like, all I thought was like, here's two guys that are suffering and I just want us, two of us get out of this alive. In this process, I just kept I'm laying down in my litter and I just kept wanting to sit up and look at my legs, right? I just want to see what the hell's going on. I'm in pain and I keep getting one of these, right? And I, I try to look up again and I get one of these. And about the, I don't know, it was like the second or third time. I'm thinking it's the door gunner, like the U.S. soldier, you know, Blackhawk gunner. And I look up. It's that Afghan police officer. And I look up at him. And he just pets my head. And he just shakes his head at me like, kind of like saying relax, right? So the chopper took us to Fob Salerno. Uh, closest mass unit there. They assessed us there. Then another Black Hawk came in and that Black Hawk was taking us to, um, all three of us to, uh, um, Bagram Air Base. Uh, one of the main U.S. hospitals is right there in Bagram. So while I was there, I remember the docs saying to me, we're going to have to do surgery on your right hip. Now, mind I add, I have both my legs at this point. And, they said, and if you're looking at me, my injuries, my right leg looks so beat up. It looks 10 times worse than my left. So when he said, we're going to do surgery on your right hip, immediately I'm like, all right, let's do it. Before I went into surgery, that Afghan police officer walks into my room, big smile, and he does this. Yep, hand on a heart ladies and gentlemen and he starts talking he doesn't even fucking speak English but we all know body language that will stick with me for the rest of my life you know it's we're told not to trust these people we're told not to 
you know, because sometimes it never happened to us, but we hear these war stories of like blue on green where the Afghans we're working with, whether it's Afghan military, or Afghan police, one will just go rogue and start shooting people. Right. And uh, so we're always told not to trust them, but obviously, you know, and sometimes I always think what would make somebody want to do that? You know, maybe uh, we, we hear the stories of like the Taliban will kidnap, you know, a family member of theirs and like you kill some Americans or we'll kill your daughter or we'll rape your wife or whatever. And it's like, well, it's either them or me, you know, and I, I gratefully, I, I mean, somebody told me that and I, I'm not saying it's right what they're doing. I would never, ever, ever say that. But if somebody put a gun to your head and said, it's either you go kill these people or we're going to rape your daughter and kill her. What are you going to do? Exactly. And you there's know, also the other element of, you know, we've seen U.S. soldiers lose their shit, too. So there's yes. also that PTSD mental health side from the Afghani as well. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, I forget the incident. The staff sergeant. Um, I'll, I, you know, there's I remember the one big incident guy goes off base and he slaughters his whole Afghan family. You know, and it's it sucks, man. You know, casualty of war up here. Yeah. Know? But anyway, I don't mean to get off track, but my point being, though, is this gentleman here, this Afghan police officer, like showing that sense of uh, compassion. I needed that more than ever at that point. I didn't know where my life was going. You know, I go under for surgery on my hip. James, I wake up. Somebody's pulling a breathing tube out of my throat and I'm kind of freaking out like because I'm just coming to and I'm not realizing anything happened. When they get the breathing tube out, the nurse, it's an American nurse, and she's, uh, they say, hey, welcome to, La- uh, welcome to Ronstein, Germany. You're at Launch Dual Air Force Base. So I'm in a whole different continent at that point, and I don't remember anything that happened in between after that surgery. So um, I guess at this point, I was awarded my Purple Heart. Uh, my command flew to see me. I don't remember any of it. So later that day in Germany, the doc said, we're going to have to amputate your left leg. And my mindset was, doc, don't you mean my right? Because my right is what? A little uh, damage. Everything. This was, I mean, they were both pretty beat up, but this guy was, my right leg was 10 times worse. And when he said it was, your muscles were so ruptured in your right, your left leg, we had to remove them, so it's just dangling there now. So internally, what we didn't see, right? Yeah. So we did an amputation below the knee uh, that day. Um, we realized a few days later they went higher and they made me an above knee amputee on my left side. Uh, so I have a full femur but no knee on my left amputation. And my right leg is considered a limb salvage. Uh, at the time, there were talks. We don't know what's going to happen with your right leg. You might have to get amputated in the future. Um, if I did get it amputated, they said it'd be below the knee. Um, and I do get a lot of pain in my foot. Like, uh, I, I think you saw me on that course. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk I, about that. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. but what I saw was freaking amazing. Not, you know, I mean, it was what you did despite all the shit you were going through that was mind blowing. Well, thank you. Well, and my attitude with the amputation, I said, Doc, do you fucking got to do, man? You know, like, whatever, man. I, I was very optimistic at this point, James. I was moving forward. I was in a, like, um, I was here. Uh, things could have been a lot worse. So I tried to be optimistic about this. A few more days in Germany, a few more surgeries. I finally got sent. 
to uh, Washington, D.C. Walter Reed Army Medical Center. This is going to be my home from, for a long time. Do my rehab. And uh, this is now 2008. The surge of the Iraq war happened a year prior. Uh, Bush had that big surge in Iraq. Uh, Afghanistan always picks up in the summer months. So you can imagine there's people of all walks of life of many injuries around. Like if you go to Walter Reed now, it's a ghost town. But oh, really? Yeah. Good. I mean, I don't want to say it's a ghost town, but... Compared to what it was. If, oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you couldn't get a... When I would go to physical therapy, I couldn't get a damn P, PT mat. When my family got the green light to come down, you know, it was first my just my immediate family. And one by one, they would have to come into ICU to see me. You know, first my mom, then my dad, you know, I forget who was next, but, you know, eventually Joe walked in, right? And James, my attitude is very like, you know, like I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm happy to see everybody. You know, and Joe says at one point throughout the day, man, I should have just gone with you. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like gone with me, man. Like, well, maybe this wouldn't have happened if I was there. And I'm like, get that bullshit out of your head right now that's all i thought of like stop thinking about that there's nothing you could have done man like i'm here i'm alive my fucking nuts didn't get blown off i'm gonna be okay man like i'm gonna be all right you know and you would have been given the exact same detail whether he was there or not exactly yeah. you know you wouldn't have been there joe you know how this works they never put us together roll the dice and this is what happened but i'm here to talk about it and that's what's important Scott and Derek, they don't have that opportunity like I do now. So I'm trying to be optimistic about it. So my time at Walter Reed James was pretty, you know, I thought, looking back, I thought it was pretty great. I thought the care went well. One thing I would change, I wish the military would just stop throwing meds at you like crazy. Like 24 years old, this happened to me, and, you know, I'm on long-acting morphine, short-acting morphine, clonopin, Ambien, Zoloft, and I don't have the shit they're giving me. I'm just reading the bottle, and this is when I'm supposed to take it my ignorance you know but uh you know that's a whole other story but other than that man i thought my physical therapy was great my physical therapist her name is kyla uh she's from pennsylvania as well she's from northwest pennsylvania and i'm from northeast and <laughs> she's a ball buster you know um uh we just got along great i looked forward to going to physical therapy my occupational therapist is a gentleman named Oren, uh, another ball buster and i think that's good it's not like they're holding your hand through this. It's like, all right, go do this. Like kind of a kick in the ass. And that's what I think. I personally think that's so much more like that's what you need. You you need a kick in the ass. Everybody needs a kick in the ass once in a while. Mm -hmm. right. Well, especially with, with the military background where that's what you've been used to anyway from boot camp onwards. And, you know, I think that's something I hear from a lot of people that have, you know, had had incidences in the military where they've lost limbs is you need someone that believes in you that you can push way past where an, a quote-unquote average person would think they could go. Yep, I agree. You know, at Walter Reed, I learned how to snowboard again. I, I was introduced to sled hockey. I don't know if you're ice hockey. Mm -hmm, where they put the short sticks and they're pushing yep. them on the ice. Yep. Yeah, I, was, I tried out for the national team. Um, <laughs> day zero of tryouts, I knew I was going to make the team because the competition <laughs> was just unbelievable. I'm like, yeah, maybe these guys are a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> but next time, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it was unreal. So, you know, life was good. You know, I, I uh, medically retired and, uh, you know, got out. I moved back to Scranton, Pennsylvania. And um, I, the girl I was seeing at the time, she was uh, she was a nurse at a local hospital in Scranton. And every year, 
their department that she works in, like the doctors like to take the rest of the department out for a nice get dressed up event, like their way of saying, you had a great year, guys, like, you know, let's get them next year, right? So I'm getting ready for this event. I'm getting out of the shower. I put, you know, my suit pants on and a t-shirt and before I put the rest of my suit on, I'm gelling my hair uh in the bathroom and all of a sudden my phone rings and i'm just gonna keep gel on my hair and let it go to voicemail i wash my hands i look at my phone it's my mom i listen to voicemail and she says you need to call me immediately so i end up uh giving her a call back and she picks up the phone and she's so somber on the other end like earl mom what's the matter joe committed suicide It was the worst day of my life, man. How can I get this second chance at life and have Joe take his away? I was destroyed. I don't remember the rest of that conversation, but I hit the floor and I just screamed. She said it loud enough that the girl I was dating, her name was Lori. Lori heard it. She hit the floor and she started bawling. I don't know what else was said, but I remember in the phone call with I love you. I stood up. I walked. Five steps into the kitchen. And I opened the refrigerator. And every single ounce of alcohol I had poured it down the drain. What did we talk about in the beginning? My old man. I thought if I grabbed a drink right now, my life was fucked and I was going to go down the path as fizz. Don't get me wrong, I drink now, but that moment, I, I'm, I don't know, I'm very glad I did that. Like, I, I, I don't know what it would have been like, but for whatever reason, that's what I did. I, you know. Very next thing I did was shut off all my social media because I didn't want to deal with the storm that was about to come, but it's inevitable. It's going to happen. People are calling my phone. People are showing up at my house. And is this really true? Is this really true? I just stopped picking up my phone at this point. Like, let them fucking deal with it on their own. Like, find out. The next day I had to go to Joe's house. There's Joe's wife. There's his wife's staff. There's Joe's kids. Joe, at this point, was active duty in a National Guard unit. Okay, so um, like I said, he's still in, in the Army, but he has a full-time job in the National Guard. Before that, he was a corrections officer at a state prison. His uh, um, a lot of his CO buddies are at the house. A lot of these guys I've never met before, but I'm finally putting faces to the name, right? And you can imagine the energy in this house is just so somber. And everybody's pissed off. Everyone's confused. People are crying. People are just like, what now? And I was one of those guys. Yeah, what now? All right. Well, it is now a week before Christmas, right? It's now Sunday. Tomorrow's Monday. Um, tomorrow's that next day was December 20th. The armory, people, someone's going to be at the armory. 
Hey, you and you, you guys free tomorrow? Come up with me to the armory. We drove up to the armory. There's my old running in the CNCO, Sergeant Peterson. He comes over, gives me a big hug, gives his condolence. The other end of this big office, this big room, there's a desk. There's Joe's desk. I take a box. I start putting everything in his box. Okay, now what? All right, Sergeant Peterson, does Joe get benefits for his funeral? Oh, he does? Let's fill out this paperwork right now. You, I need you to go talk to supply. I want to make sure all of Joe's awards and his uniform is in order because it's going to be an open casket, all right? And we're going to put him in his dress blues, okay? You, tomorrow, let's go talk to Priest Funeral Home in Carbondale. We're going to start the situation there. Talk to St. Rosa Lima Church in Carbondale. We're going to start the process with that. And I started delegating all these tasks, James, and it just kept me busy. Here I am being so busy prepping for my brother's funeral. It's not like I'm pro- it's not like I'm processing it. You know, somebody said to me after the funeral, you seemed like you were in such a good mood. And I don't think I was acting like I, you know, but the day of the funeral came, I'm in my dress blues. I walk up to that casket. I give him his final salute. And that's that. Now what? James, remember when I said when I went to Iraq, But before I went to Iraq, I made the military all about me. Like, what can I get out of this? I went right back to that. But such a negative way. Playing the victim. Feeling sorry for myself. Thinking the fucking world owed me everything. Let me tell you something, man. What does the world owe you? Exactly. Here I am, Uncle Rico at a bar. Just living in the past. You know what I did for my country? You know what I mean? All that bullshit and negativity. Hey, Uncle Rico, have you ever seen Napoleon Dynamite? Oh, yes. <laughs> so you know what One I'm talking about. the best films ever made. <laughs> <laughs> I was that guy, you know? Just thinking the world owed me everything. for All this bullshit I dealt with. Losing my leg, losing my career, and losing my twin brother. All in a short period of time. It's tough. One of the things that helped me get out of this, James, was I... Learn from Joe's wife and some of the guys he served with, uh, served with at the prison as a CEO. So Joe was, uh, I guess Joe was very proud of things I accomplished, like um, physically after losing my leg. Like I said, I learned how to snowboard. I learned how to play sled hockey. I like living my life. You know, a lot letting this slow me down. Actually, when I went to, when I learned how to snowboard, I went to Vail, right? And I got a special prosthetic leg and I uh, worked with an instructor and, um, there's a photo of me on the, the Vail Daily where I'm snowboarding down this little bunny slope, right? But my pant leg is rolled up. You can obviously see I'm an amputee, mm-hmm. right? So when I saw that on the front page, you know, and you put a quarter in and you open the thing and you take a paper. I took every damn paper because <laughs> that's just coming home. I'm on the front page, man. It's all coming home. Man. <laughs> so when I took them home, I gave them out to, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, man, I'm on, you know, I'm on the front page. So... I guess these guys at the prison, they, yeah, man, we heard, like I would say to them, what they say to me, we've heard so much about you. And from Joe's wife, Steph, they said, you know, he was just so proud of you. But Joe would never say that to me. I didn't know that. And that kind of changed my mindset a little bit. If he was part of me then, would he be proud of me now? So I decided to change a little bit. You know, I started off small. I started ruck marching. I just put weight in a backpack and just get miles on my prosthetics, you know. Make little victories, little victories every weekend, go a little farther. There's a dike in Kingston, Pennsylvania, and it's marked every quarter of a mile. So I try to go farther uh, once a week, you know. Um, 
you know, things started to build up a little bit. I started running. Um, my friend Amanda Sullivan asked me if I wanted to do a Spartan race. She's never done one. She was she's on crutches. At the time, she was on crutches, and she's like, "You want to do a Spartan race?" I'm like, sure. So I went to go do the Spartan race in Virginia with her, and out there was these uh, these gentlemen all in multicam uniforms, right? Uh, this is the morning we're picking up our bib before we go to the starting line. Of it was 2013 Wintergreen, Virginia. Uh, Spartan race and I saw these guys in multi-cams and one guy comes up to me and he's like hey Earl nice to meet you and he puts his hand out shake it and it's Noah Galloway I don't know if you're familiar with Noah at all um, I've met a lot of them I don't know if you I have you probably didn't meet Noah hasn't been with us for some time I mean so tell you a little bit about Noah Noah's on the cover of Men's Health Magazine and he was also in uh, Dancing with the Stars. Oh, really? Right. And his injuries from an IED blast in Iraq, he was with the 101st Airborne, is he lost his left arm above the elbow and his left leg above the knee. And he was on the cover of Men's Health Magazine. Brilliant. And he was on Dancing with the Stars. So I know who this dude is, right? Like, actually... Shortly after I lost my leg, I remember seeing photos of him and being with my injury, right? Here I am trying to accomplish stuff physically and seeing what this guy has done with a much more dramatic injury than mine. It's someone I looked up to. So when he holds his hand, he'll, hey, I'm, you know, Noah, and I'm thinking of myself in my mind, I know who the fuck you are, dude. You're like, <laughs> you're a rock star to me. You know what I mean? You know, a guy I looked up to, I'll just put it that way. Yeah. We did this course. I went in a little cocky. I've done Tough Mudders before, man, right? Well, I did like 10 miles Tough Mudders. Well, this is my first ever Spartan race. It was eight miles, so I'm like, oh, I can do this. It was eight miles up a damn friggin' uh, ski resort in August, right? Climbing up and down those mountains. I'd never experienced anything like that with my amputation. I've done flat courses, but going up those mountains were... By far, James, I mean, it was very humbled afterwards and it took me all day. We got done and Noah comes up to me and he says, what do you think about joining us? I had to back up a little bit. Actually, I, I left something out. Noah asked me to run alongside these guys in operation during Warrior, okay? So, I'd, like, I'd be humbled too, man. It'd be awesome. So, before they went to the starting line, we all went on a little side side area where nobody was they said a few words and they put these gas masks on so i'm looking at this like these guys are fucking badass right no i didn't have a gas mask they helped me get through this course they're them and their ocas and then afterwards no asked me to join right and i thought man i don't think i'm ready for something like this but i sat on it for a little while and then i said uh you know if this guy who i really look up to is asking me to join this organization i shouldn't turn this down Right. So, you know, I, I reached out to him and said, you know, I want to become a mass athlete of OEW. Right. And I went through my in-doc in uh, early 2014, right outside of, uh, right, right, uh, right at Fort Bragg. And um, there was 10 people in my class and uh, five of us passed. And James, for the first time in a long time, I earned a spot on a team. All right. And my mindset, my mindset went right back to Iraq. It's not about you, you dipshit. It's not about me. It's about us. 
I'm part of a team once again. I have a mission. And I, you know, and it was, it was something I earned. Like that weekend, I went through hell trying to, you know, make it on this team. And to earn that spot really humbled me. And it's, I didn't realize that at the time, I always say it, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't OAW. Well, it was OAW, but to be more specific, it was INDOC, is where my life completely changed for the better. Where I realized, all right, dude, you got to stop acting like this. You know, like I was getting there a little bit, but that right there is what I needed. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a combination of two things that I've noticed from a lot of conversations that are often contributing factors to mental ill health, which is a loss of tribe. So you are with that group of men or men and women that you adored, that you would die for. And then one day you're just working in a prison or, you know, whatever it is. And then the other thing is that that giving back, that having a purpose, that having a mission again. And I find that's those two things are also extremely healing when people find it. And OEW com- combines those two. I mean, I'm not a masked athlete. And they actually asked, you know, if I would want to do it to be on, on the fire side, which they're trying to in, uh, kind of introduce. And I'm like, well, I'm better off at giving exposure to this. You guys are already doing that and kicking ass. I'm happy just to run alongside. But yeah, I mean, this the the honorees that, that run i mean i ran with drew stokes who um you know, was a police officer that was a uh, well, law enforcement officer that was shot um you know it was amazing like watching him pre-race and post-race it was a different person it is it's absolutely incredible so you kind of nailed it with tribe right there this led me joining oew has really brought it filled in a lot of aspects that I didn't realize I was really, really missing when I was in the military. No, we're not going to war and carrying a rifle and putting combat situations anymore, but it's a camaraderie. And, you know, I'm now a public speaker and I talk a lot about my story and my ideas of healthy ways to battle adversity, right? And in my program, I talk about three Ps. Purpose, passion, part of something bigger than yourself. You know, a lot of these are self-explanatory, but what do we find in the military? My purpose, I was an infantryman. Uh, My passion is, you know, the military in general. And self-explanatory, I'm part of something bigger than myself. That Iraq deployment, it's not about me, it's about us. I don't care what the politics are, it's, it's not about any of that, it's my guys making sure we get the job done and make sure we all come home safe. That's being a part of something bigger than myself, I feel like, right? Those three Ps, I feel like as human beings, all of us need those in our lives. How do we find those three Ps? Attitude. You must have a good attitude in this life. Because that Uncle Rico mentality I had, that dysfunctional veteran bullshit that I once had, it was just causing me to just turmoil and downward spiral comfort zone you must step out of it if you stay stagnant you're never going to find what you're looking for you have to take those leaps and you know i haven't talked to noah in years but i you know when i see him you know i don't even have to tell him but i would credits given what credits do i think when noah asked me to join that team in oew like that was kind of like a that was a kick in the ass i need of me stepping out of my comfort zone you know attitude comfort zone community 
And this year in OEW, we just had a tremendous loss. We just had a tremendous loss. Uh, our president, Sergeant Major, Command Sergeant Major Eric Schmitz. And this year we're going to make the rest of OEW uh, the year of community. And it's looking out for each other because we all took a huge hit to this. Yes, it was. Yeah. So to lose Eric, our, you know, our, our president, our leader in OEW to suicide was a huge toll on the massed athletes, the, our OCAs, our honorees, our AAs. It was, it was huge. It was, I mean, it was a huge loss. And, you know, I was, I was driving, we're, we chatted in Jacksonville. I was on my drive back home. So when I got that phone call. So anyway, I ended up uh, um, talk about like community, like I said, the year of community in OEW. I said those three P's: attitude, comfort zone, community. Community can be a lot of things. It could be your tribe, like you said. It could be you know a society. It's the idea of that community helping you, helping each other. I don't want to say you, single somebody out. A community carries the weight together, carries the weight of adversity together. That's the idea of what a community can do. The power of community, never underestimate it. You know, it doesn't have to be your neighborhood. I mean, it could be your neighborhood, but it could be anything. It's those people that you associate with that you could call family that's not even blood related. That's your community. That's your tribe. The idea is with the community of carrying that weight. And, you know, I... And we took photos of it before, but I have a center block here uh, with uh, chains. And uh, her name is Cindy, and she's sitting right here on James's uh, living room floor. <laughs> and uh, what Cindy represents, ladies and gentlemen, is the heavy weight of adversity that every single one of us is going to face in our lives. Guilt, stress, depression, anxiety, loss of a loved one, maybe your career, this COVID situation. We're all facing this shit right now. I was just thinking when you were telling me that, that's what's been taken away from so many people. Like they don't know what their purpose is. They can't even go and function and do the day-to-day stuff. Their community they had in the gym, their church, whatever was taken away from them. You know, the purpose, like what's the purpose? I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. Am I supposed to wear a mask? Am I not? Am I staying away am i you know what i mean so i think that's what we're seeing a lot of at the moment and it's so tragic is a lot of these healing elements when it comes to mental health are actually being taken and to me making people even less resilient to exactly this. you know and i i don't i don't mean to talk about covid but i agree with you 100 percent. i think what a lot of these people are out here they're like uh you know, it's like they're hounding people for not wearing a mask. Look, I'm going to wear a mask. I think it's ridiculous, but I'm going to wear it. I'm going to absolutely, I'll wear it. Just if it makes somebody else feel better, it's whatever. I'm not going to work out wearing it. I'll tell you that right now, though. Like all that heavy breathing stuff like that. No, I'm not going to do that. But to make somebody feel better, yeah. I'm, yeah, it's, it, it's it a compassion you, thing then. Yeah, exactly. You're like, scared, I'll wear it to stop you being scared. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to be one of those guys that are hounding, oh, don't wear a mask. Ah, whatever, man. It takes two seconds i walk into a gas station grab a water and i walk back out i take it off i wear it for two minutes you know like who cares right i go grocery shopping who cares right but um if people are worried about their health when it comes to the mass sure but we also have everything you discussed right there we look at mental health we look at kids now kids are they're faced with the um not going to school with 
some kids, let's be real, the, the real portion of this is some kids look forward to that. Get out of their, their uh, dysfunctional household that they're living in and the dangers they're put in. You know, I mean, domestic- or loneliness. I mean, my, my little boy went through some pretty significant mental health issues kind of either side of the new year. And, you know, there were, there were some external factors as well. But like now we're in this community, you've seen this beautiful place with the park in the middle. It's dead because all the kids sucks, are being kept man. inside. So It's unfortunate. And this too shall pass. This is, to me, I'll never call it the new normal because no. it's going to go away. It well, will. The new normal should be, and just to interrupt, but the new normal should absolutely be changing the way we look at nutrition, changing the way we look at movement, exercise, mental practice, the environment. This has taught us a whole load of lessons. So the new normal shouldn't be walking around wearing hazmat gear. The new normal should be how do we make humans more resilient? But that conversation isn't being had. So I hope there That's is a actually new normal. a good, I never thought of it that way. You know, to back to the center block, people losing their community. The idea of community is carrying that weight together, right? And now it's it's difficult to have that community. You know, one of the things, James, you told me was we could do this podcast via Zoom. And I said, no, man, I think it's so much more dynamic face-to-face. I truly do believe that. And I, if I have the choice, you know, one downfall on this is I have a little bit of free time. So it gave me the ability to come down here and do this. Like, no, let's do this the right way in my mind. Um, but with this, like, I don't get to do, I don't get to see my tribe that much. I don't get to see my OEW teammates as much. I don't, you know, it sucks that I, I lost all this, right? What we can do now is the importance of looking after one another even more at this point. You know, a quick conversation, quick text to help carry that weight of adversity. Because sometimes in these moments, in the way the world is right now, it's difficult to see each other face to face, right? So now we have to understand the importance. I mean, like I said, we lost Eric, uh, I mean, just last month. And it was a huge toll on our community. But now um, somebody once, somebody mentioned in this huge team call we had after he died, like, we can't over bombard Eric's family seeing that they're okay we have to let them breathe a little bit but also remind them that we're always going to be here yeah like a simple text saying when you're ready but that over bombarding we need to do it to the rest of all of us because we're all affected by this and that goes back to Cindy of carrying that weight together not letting people carry it on their own and I, I got to see it working. I mean, I look at Troy, um, Troy Warsha, one of my teammates at OAW. He's the acting president now. And he was making his rounds, calling everybody. He called me a few times. And I, and I'm, it's just so good to hear his voice. You know what I mean? It's, it's, um, it's important that we continue to do that. I think the physical touch and the physical bro hug or whatever it may be, that's obviously so much more impactful. But we don't have the ability to do that because of COVID. It's important for us to FaceTime, to call, to text. We can't let that slow us down. You know what I mean? We must continue to carry that weight, to carry that cinder block. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Cindy. I had the uh, good fortune to meet her personally quite a few times (laughs) at some of the Spartan races before we even met. Mm -hmm. Um, The Give Team, where Brad told me the story of their version of Cindy who I was joking with you before, they had dropped. So the second time I carried her, they had a double Cinder block. <laughs> Cindy 2.0, obese Cindy. Um, so um, tell me about me and Brad and the gift team and you know, just tell me your impression of those amazing people. I think it was a, it was a Miami Spartan race. I think it was 
2018. And, you know, one of my best friends, Johnny Lopez, he said, um, I flew to this event, so I didn't have my Cindy with me. And, uh, but Johnny has one of his own and we showed up at the Spartan race and we're actually running with another organization called the Oscar Mike Foundation. And Johnny came up with a cinder block and he said, these guys are going to be here. I invited them with us and they're, uh, I want you to give them this cinder block and just say to them, your job is to carry this throughout the whole race without dropping it. And I'm like, Okay, I'll do that, right? <laughs> so, hey guys, you know, nice to meet you. I'm Earl. Uh, you know, this is Brad and his crew, the Give Team. And I just did exactly that. I gave them the center block and gave them their task and that was that. So they ran the race with us with, in Oscar Mike and we finished the race. And um, when we got done, I gave an elevator, my elevator pitch of what Cindy represents, my story and what Cindy re- represents, Right. And then I said, now this is yours, right? And that was that. Now I got to tell you, man, I'm I'm very humbled by every time I look on Instagram, they're they're carrying Cindy around. Like, I feel like they've, it's it's, it's like they, they went above and beyond of what I built. I mean, every day they're working out with Cindy. I got to tell you, either I'm speaking with Cindy when I do my public speaking events, or I'm, or Cindy uh, is on a course with me in the Oscar Mike Foundation, or Cindy just sits in the back of my truck <laughs> getting ready for the next event. But it's like every day they got their Cindy out and they're preaching what she represents. And man, I'm just so humbled by you know what they built Cindy to be. And I got to tell you, Brad himself, what Brad has created, the Give Team. I mean, we discussed this before. You know, I've gotten awards for my public speaking and my volunteer work. But Brad, I'm telling you, that dude, he deserves like a, you know, a Nobel Peace Prize or something, man. He has built something so amazing for these kids. And I'm just humbled to be a part of it because these kids are amazing. Like, you know, I, I won't, I, I'm not going to be one to tell their story. I, I, I don't have the honor to do that, but. Everything that I discuss in my public speaking, being part of something bigger than yourself, uh, like you said before, having your tribe, you know, the community and purpose in the moment. Those guys, their, their purpose is making sure they don't drop that center block and they, and that purpose is ruined when they, they've done before. They get, I don't want to call it a punishment, but they get a heavy burden, heavier burden to carry. Yes. You know what I mean? And it, it causes, it, it, it builds discipline. It, it builds structure. And it's, I'm just so humbled to work with these kids once in a while. These guys are just amazing, you know. And this is all Brad. I mean, what Brad has developed is just unbelievable. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely worthy and should be noted by everybody. Like, this isn't just another race team. Like, the Oscar Mike Foundation, like Operation During Warrior. This is like, this is, we have a lot of moving parts in the organizations I'm a part of, but this is Brad and his crew and that's it. Like, and that is so, it's just so noble. And uh, I could go all day about those guys. Yeah, man, but, well, I mean, they but, are, they're amazing. And I think that's what we're seeing now. We talk COVID, let's talk about more current affairs with, you know, the the racial tension that's going on between 
certain groups, certainly not the majority of this country, we're all standing in the middle going, yeah, we know racism is bullshit. <laughs> we agree with you completely. Absolutely. And some police officers should never have been wearing a badge in the first place. Oh, you are so, absolutely right. But um, but what I see with what Brad's done with the Give Team, the new new image youth center in Paramore that they, they function out of, and then my friend Chris Hickman, who has an amazing firefighter mentorship program here, is if one person in the community cares you can help raise up young men and women in that community. And some of these communities, I worked in that Paramore area. These kids are not set up for success, a lot of them. You know, they're in a very, very poor area. I just did a a web conference with um, a couple of firefighter friends of mine, three of them. Um, one was grew, grew up in the, the foster system. She was abandoned by her mother who was an addict in a, in a hotel. Another one grew up in the worst place in Orlando, hands down. Um, and... He ended up going to University of Colorado playing football and then became a firefighter and now serves the area he used to live in. And then she became a firefighter and is now special operations. But he's all because of mentors in their life too. And I think that's what people got to understand. Ideally, we're all going to be good parents. And along with some mentors in the community, we're going to raise great kids. Sometimes households don't have good parents or no parents, you know, whatever it is. So it's so important to be that beacon in society and Brad is and Chris is and all these other people. And that's what it's shown us. You know, you, you want to make the streets safer, create better police officers. Obviously, you know, my opinion is address things like drug policy, stop making, you know, putting drugs in the hands of criminals. I think that's created so much problems, but also find a way to bring these kids and give them leadership and give them purpose and community so that they aren't pulled the down the, the dark road, but they're actually given the self-belief that they could be a soldier or a fireman or a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, as, as you see with some of the Give team, they're in, they're in college now. They're in college. So, And it's, it's I, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe Brad has a lot to do with that. Yeah. And it's not like I'm going to pay for your college. No, it's, it's not a handout. He's built a mentality and an attitude for these kids to give them a path to success. Mm-hmm. The hard work pays off. Absolutely. And I think that's what people need in life. You know, and, and there's too many handouts in, in life. I truly do believe that. I, I, I 100%, I, I really do believe that. Yeah. A handout, you know, when you give somebody something, it's, it's, um, it's, I think it's worth more when you earn it. Mm-hmm. But then there's not enough hand ups, you know, meaning lifting someone up. So I think it's empowerment that we need. No handouts, we need hand ups. Mm-hmm. I like that. I never thought of the hand up that yeah. way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the way I, I look at it and not, you know, getting on my soapbox. But what we also have, we have entitlement in all the different socioeconomic areas. And what I see a lot of is that judgmental, whether it's someone who's struggling from mental health, addiction, you know, they're, they're homeless, whatever. It's like, well, I'm in suburbia now. You're a piece of shit because you live under a bridge. Instead of, I'm in suburbia now, how the fuck can I help you not live under a bridge anymore? And and it blows me away because we were talking about whatever invisible man you believe in. To me, all the invisible men, if you take out the extremist shitbags that believe in those, or you know, twist these doctrines to, to match their own, they're all saying, hey, don't be a fucking asshole in life. Help other people. So your your books are telling you what to do. So don't maybe focus on going and singing songs in a building. Maybe actually leave that building and go and help people in your community. 
<laughs> slow clap. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. You you nailed it with instead of singing songs in a building, you know, lead by example. You know, all those things you are preaching. How about you live by them instead? Yeah, I mean, if you do both, then awesome. But don't not do the part where you actually help people. Yeah, and I think it's you know when we start being judgmental, it's like what gives you the right to even be singing those songs in the first place? You know what I mean? You feel better about yourself getting your hour in a day, kneel, stand, kneel, stand. And I would never, ever, look, everybody has their faith and I respect anybody's faith, absolutely. But you better be practicing what you preach. Does that make sense? Like, no, it does. I mean, that's, that's why that phrase is there. You know, <laughs> practice what you preach. Yeah. So, And that's what I see is that if you're in a good place, lift people up. And it's the same with mental health. I mean, my wife's been walking behind us now. Today is, is sadly the anniversary of when she lost Danny, her boyfriend before we met, to suicide. Right. You know, we're sitting here and you lost Joe. You know, we're talking about Eric. So there are people in this world that are hurting. And so you have two types. You have the facade, which we see a lot in the first responder military profession where rub some dirt in it, boys don't cry, all that bullshit that we were taught growing up in, in our generation. Um, and then you have people that genuinely are doing well. Mm-hmm. They happen to have great family units. They happen to have, you know, a faith that really guides them through. Um, they have exercise. They have a dog, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> so then you owe it to the people that are hurting to A, be vulnerable, which is what you're doing today, being part of the solution. And then, you know, so, so being there for people and then being a beacon as well. Like, well, here's what got me through. Here's where I was. So many of my guests had a gun in their mouth, either metaphorically or physically. And they got through it. And now they're telling their story. So you're either the one hurting and hopefully we create an environment around you for you to feel like you can truly reach out and ask for help. Or you're the one that's the help. But neither of those two options are looking down your nose judging someone. Right. No, that's a good point. I think there's so much shame that we put when it comes down to judgment that it's, you're not, especially when somebody's struggling mentally and you don't know where they're at, right? Um, I think shame is really one of those aspects of what brings somebody that low where it could be a sense of, you know, they, they decide to take that leap of suicide, you know. But also, I mean, I think there's so much self-ego that they don't want to show that shame or they don't want to show that vulnerability self you know when i say self-ego i see i see this in the military a lot guys who serve in the military i i I don't think it's a stigma i think it's the truth they're so afraid and maybe firefighting i'm sure might be the same way law enforcement emt they don't like to show that vulnerability because of the profession they're in as leaders you know because you look at it with respect as a leader as somebody strong so that shame they don't like to show or that vulnerability shame they don't like to show that right i call that self-ego right like there's a difference between pride and self-ego i'm very proud of my military service right now I learned after a while to finally, you better see a counselor. You know what I mean? But before I finally made that decision to make see a counselor, where I, I thought I'm a big bad infantryman, I, sh- I don't need to see a counselor, that's self-ego. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. It's good to have, have pride. You know, I got a Purple Heart license plate on my truck, right? I take pride in my military service. But self-ego causes self-destruction remember that self-ego causes self-destruction don't let that self-ego 
ego overpower you. Us as human beings, we're all going to face this shit, heavy shit in our lives. No matter what our profession is, whether you're a military, firefighter, or you're, you work in an office, or you're a lawyer, or whatever it may be, we all face adversity at some points in our lives. It's human nature. We're all going to face it. No matter what your privilege is, no matter who you are, you know, it's never a pissing contest. We're all going to face it. What we can do for ourselves is show that vulnerability of reaching out because that could save a life someday. I got to tell you with Eric, I did not see that coming. You know, I know my brother was, you know, I, I won't get too much into it, but there was a little bit there where he wasn't himself, but I didn't think he would do anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, none you know? of us do. And that's the problem. Yep. You know, and I think when it comes down to vulnerability, I think vulnerability could definitely save a life. And, you know, I always, did you ever see the movie, uh, American Sniper? Oh, yes. So read the book too. You know, Chris Kyle, he's, uh, what I like to get, tell my audience, my audience is military. It's like, you know, give me some adjective, Chris Kyle. He's a badass. He's a hero. He's a warrior, blah, 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 you know. And then I, you know, what I love most about this flick is I don't give a shit how many times he went to Iraq. I don't give a shit that he's the most lethal sniper in U.S. Armed Forces history. I don't give a shit that he was a Navy SEAL. What I love most is his vulnerability. And you know what I'm talking about towards the end of the movie? Mm-hmm. And was, the beginning, too. Like the fact that he even struggled yeah. with that shot. Yeah, that you're, you're right. And I think that's so important. You know, where his buddy was like, oh, did you see that? And like, how, like, like anybody would want to do that, you know? Yeah. But that, towards the end of the movie, when it finally shows him talking to the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. After he's been sitting in the, staring at the TV that wasn't actually on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's banging on the window of the incubator at his newborn, you know, like... So when he finally goes talking, I don't know, he's at a VA or he's talking to a counselor or something. And he says, what brings you here today, Chris? And he's like, I feel like I should still be over there serving my country, helping my guys. And that counselor turned right around and he said, why don't you walk down this hallway? People need help here too, you know. And then the very next scene, it shows that triple amputee in a wheelchair. And he's talking about, I don't know if you remember the story that triple amputee was saying. Um, how he lost his legs and his one arm. Uh, he was in, he was a vehicle commander. I think he was a vehicle commander of his Humvee and he went to reach over to grab his cigarettes in the position he was in at that moment. His vehicle was hit with an RPG. Um, and because he was in that position reaching for his cigarettes, he got to keep, they say it's what saved his other limb, right? That's a true story. That guy talking, I remember, I didn't know he was going to be in this movie. But when I, I was in theaters, when I saw it, I was like, holy fuck, that's Brian Anderson. I know him. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I freaked out, you know? He was on the cover of Esquire. Him and I talked on the phone. We, we bullshitted at Walter Reed. Like, really good dude. So that story you're hearing him say is really what happened to him, mm-hmm. right? So, I bet, I bet the, there's a punchline for spoking doesn't kill in that particular thing. <laughs> well, that's what, I was just about to say that. So anybody, you know, probably the only guy in history saying smoking saved his fucking life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but the point being, though, back to Chris Kyle is Chris Kyle lost his purpose. This badass, this warrior, this hero. You know what I mean? Like this is who a lot of people in society look at as a very tough figure. And an icon, he showed his vulnerability and look what it did. I understand his demise and what happened. But what helped him find his happiness once again is started by being vulnerable. 
and and yeah and giving back finding the purpose yep. yeah he found his new purpose he lost his purpose and he found it so all those adjectives that we said about chris kyle i want one more he's human just like all of us man we're all gonna face this shit in our lives guys we can't let our self-ego cause us to self-destruct i don't even give a shit it you know Maybe it's not a, maybe you're not ready to see a counselor. Maybe you could start with somebody, somebody who you know you can trust and talk to. Okay. Now, granted, every person we know that we're close with might not have the strength to hear you like word vomit all of your problems. And that's okay. You know, some people, they're just not prepared for it or they don't know how to react. They don't know what to say or they think they're saying the right words and it's not. So it's always going to have patience. That's why I always say, see a counselor. But if a counselor is something you might not be ready with, I guarantee it. Here, I'll give you an example. I can't talk to my family. When I was going through my struggles, when I would try to talk to my family, the shit they would say back, I was like, I would just, fuck you guys. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? And I don't think they're meaning anything wrong, but like, they're just not the right people to listen. Exactly. You know, you're absolutely right. It took a, you know, I, there's a friend of mine growing up, Chris Montgomery. I remember he would be, it, it's just his personality. You know, he's not a counselor or anything. He's a archaeologist right now. Really? But I know it, talking to him made me a sense, gave me a sense of comfort. You know what I mean? When something was wrong, you know, yeah. with the sh- shit I was dealing with with my dad. You know what I mean? I remember, you know, uh, he would pick me up, you know, one time he picked me up and it was just bullshit, you know, and I needed that shit. I felt so much better afterwards, but there's somebody in your life. I guarantee it. There's somebody in your life because you know what? You're not bugging anybody. You're not. We're all, we, we all go through this as human beings in our lives, guys. You can't let this overpower you. When the people around you, I guarantee it, your community, they will carry that weight with you. And I know you out there, You'll also carry that weight for somebody who you know who is struggling. And it's who we are as human beings. And it's what we're supposed to be doing, looking after each other. And especially, I know we talk, especially during these times of COVID, of isolation. We always tell people not to be isolated. Well, now it's more important to reach out to people more than ever. Does that make sense? It does. And I just want to kind of add something onto that because, again, I've four years into talking to all these people, either from clinical background or so many more with just a human you know, uh, lived experience background is you think of the yin yang. So we have that hard side, and I forget if that's the yin or the yang. But um, you have that warrior side. You're you're a fireman, and you have to you know climb a hundred foot ladder and then go through a window and hope you're not going to die. You know, you're you're running towards gunfire, whatever it is. But then you got the soft side, which is why you joined up in the first place. Every one of us wants to make the world better. Every one of us cares about the lives of strangers. That's why we're putting our lives on the line. So if you then negate or refute the very compassion that caused you to sign up, then you're, you're fooling yourself. So you have that soft side already in there. And the other side, I think, for the manly men out there, if you need you know, even more um, kind of reason to, to be vulnerable is post-traumatic growth like i always think of it I, I fucked up my back five years ago and ended up healing it and got stronger than i ever was in fact today i mean i'm you know 46 and not known for my strength but we were doing 300 pound deadlifts for five reps at a time post back injury no surgery no meds none, none of that shit just 
healing. And it's the same with the mental health. If you understand that when you're struggling, once you find whatever route that's going to get to you, whether it's EMDR or MDMA therapy or equine therapy, whatever your, your, your rabbit hole is, that you're going to be more resilient. You're going to be a better firefighter, police officer, member of the military, and you're going to be a beacon now for the men and women around you. So that leadership point is there. So an understanding and owning the fact that you're struggling, that you're vulnerable, that you're hurting, and they should be viewed as, I have a potential to be a better version of myself than I was before the pain. Just my thoughts. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Interesting. Better version of yourself. I like how you mentioned post-traumatic growth. I always forget about that, but I heard uh, General Mattis give a speech about that once. And uh, it's learning from the experience, you know. And sometimes, you know, I hate to keep going back to it, but you might need someone to help you find that path so you don't have to carry it by yourself. Yeah. Well, I think that's where the vulnerability comes. So, so understanding that there's a place of strength to go, like you said, now you've got to find that friend, that person. And I, I see in the fire service specifically, because we're not well organized yet, in the military, you have kind of chains of command to even go in the military side. You know, like you said, you know, Walter Reed or... Um, you know, wherever that takes you. But in the in the first responders community, we don't. It's literally splintered. Like the counties and cities that border each other may not even like each other. So there's not that easy route. So the peer support, the men and women around you is so much more important. Then you can go from there to whatever treatment modality you choose. But if your people around you aren't creating an environment, which is why I think that stigma is so bad because... You know, you need people to be able to turn to you and say, I'm hurting. That's, to me, even more important than, you know, everything else. Like, That's a good point. I mean, because they're the ones you're going to be with for, you know, a big chunk of your day or week. You know, and if it's toxic where you can't reach out, that's where you can see mental health drop drastically mm -hmm. for the bad. Yeah. So, I mean, that is a good point. You know, toxic leadership is... You know, I think we've all seen it in, you know, careers like this. We, uh, my was, last department was a perfect example of that. Really? It was fucking horrendous, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember uh, uh, my team, one of my team leaders in my Bosnian deployment, every, nobody fucking liked him. Um, and it's, it sucks, man. You know, be a mentor, be a, be a leader. Remember, they're working for you. That's why I, I always saw it, man. You know, even in the army, man, I don't, it's not about, of course, it's about the guys above me, right? But the guys below me are the ones more important because they're the ones going to make me fucking look good, right? <laughs> so I want to, you know, and I, and when it's down and dirty, they're the ones I'm doing the blue collar work with. You know what I mean? They're the ones I would be pulling the trigger with. They're well, the they're ones, the ones that, that might die. Exactly. You know, you know what I mean? So I, their respect to me, I feel, is more important than the guys way up here. Does that make sense? No, like absolutely. It does. It does indeed. Well, I want to I wanna go to one more area, which will be your journey into politics before we wrap up. But just before we do, while I remember, you mentioned the twin experience. So tell me about that. Oh, that's right. So I learned from Joe and I learned from his wife, Steph. So remember when I said it, when I got hit, it was like 2.30 in the afternoon over there. I think it would be like... It's like weird. It's not like a full hour. It's like, I think it was eight and a half hours. I don't know where that half hour comes into play. So it was like 6 a.m. 
back in uh, Pennsylvania. I guess Joe was, Steph would tell me, and I, I want to ask her, I haven't talked to her about it in a while, but I have to ask her again. Joe got up like at 6 a.m. and he was restless. And, uh, you know, and this is the same time in 2.30 in the afternoon, halfway around the world is when I had a near-death experience. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's very interesting so how... You did feel it. Yeah, it's very interesting how it, uh, you know, and that's probably the only time ever. Like, you know, um, you know, I would try to, after hearing that, I would pinpoint where was I around the vicinity, around the ETA when Joe passed away. Like, you know what I mean? And uh, I, I think I was actually at Planet Fitness and I don't remember any, I don't feel anything, I don't, you know, but I, I'll always remember that. You know, like, yeah, Joe was restless around, you know, so that, you know, I don't know if it's just a coincidence or what, but mm -hmm. that's about it. Yeah. Know? No, it's interesting because I've heard, I've had people on here that have told me of a twin experience. And then again, like I said, Marcus Luttrell, when he was going through, you know, his incredible um, experience, his twin brother absolutely was tuning into something when you, when you hear him talking about that so interesting yeah very interesting <laughs> all right well then so you served the country wearing a uniform um what made you decide to enter or throw your hat in the ring in the in politics the, the interesting world <laughs> of politics so i gotta tell you what uh it was never my blueprint in life to get involved in politics never this is the third congressional election I was asked to run. And I thought, you know, I'm going to put my, you know, seeing, I didn't want to talk a lot about politics, but I'll even say this. Seeing who took the House in 2018 and the work that didn't get done because I think of the divide in this political spectrum and that political spectrum. Nothing got done, because, and I think it was more of a spiteful reason why things didn't get done. You know what I mean? Completely. Yeah. I mean, I see, like I said, with the county and the city element, there are people that live on the borders of those. And there's probably many, many people that are unaware that their loved ones died because of some political bullshit between a county fire department or, you know, city police department or whatever it is. And yeah, when when the 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 citizens like you said who are paying these people suffer because of some ridiculous political trench warfare i mean it's disgusting as, as a citizen watching i'm not left right whatever i mean i guess if i was going to wear a hat at all it would be kind of libertarian ish seeing of what i'm seeing from libertarians but i'm you know i would be kind of buddhist ish as well if i was but i'm not i'm james gearing and i agree left here and right here but I'm looking for leadership. Yep. And I always make exactly. this comment all the time is out of 330 million people, these are the best people. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? So that's my problem with well, it. Let me tell you something. I learned real quick, you know, put my hat in the ring. You know, I, I ran on the Republican ticket in Pennsylvania 8 is running for Congress. And um, I've been a registered independent for years. Um, I've always voted mainly on the conservative side. That's just where I line up, but I like to have an open mind and see other views. So when I was asked to run, I was like, well, if I'm going to run, it, 
if you put a gun to my head, one or the other of Democrat or Republican, I, I'd, you know, I'd be a Republican. And, you know, 2016, I, I didn't vote for Trump. I actually voted uh, Libertarian. And um, I, I went that route because he was the only candidate that was actually talking about uh, medical marijuana. And remember when I said in my time about Walter Reed, pills, 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 pills. Mm-hmm. I've seen too many people die from these fucking pills. So have I. And so, so has everyone listening to this podcast. Yeah. So sadly. in my mind, I thought, well, here's a guy. Because hear me out. I didn't, I didn't trust Trump. I definitely didn't trust Hillary Clinton. You know, And at, at the time, I wasn't sure if he was going to go. Like, I didn't think he was going to do the thing. Like, why? what is his motive here? Why is he doing this? You know, and my from what I saw moving forward, part of me thought he whether you love him or hate him, everything he said he was going to do, he's trying to get it done or he's gotten it done. I respect that a lot. Okay, and I see a lot of people on the other political spectrum, the Democrats, and I, you know, trying to blame Trump for every problem that's going on in this country. And when they've been in office for 35, 40 years, this guy's been in office for only four you can't, you know what I mean? Like it's, so I was, I was looking at it like, and I see his ideas, uh, you know, what, what law did he just pass? He lowered the man, uh, lowered the price of, uh, the insulin. Yeah. And, uh, other, uh, you know, pharmaceutical items. Yeah. And I'm see, like, and well, that, that's, that's my thing as well, though. I'd much rather see an improvement in overall health and attack on type two diabetes than, than just that. You know what I mean? So that, that made a big, a big, uh, you know, story, and, and that's brilliant. But there's another way of looking at it: the prevention side. Oh, so to absolutely. me, lowering price of insulin is like washing your hands with COVID. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Let's make people where the, the the virus isn't so dangerous in the first place. Right. No, that's a good point too. Well, I look at a you know this COVID situation too with the vaccine or hydroxychloroquine, and it just uh, to be honest, I, I you know. In the prime, the primaries didn't go my the way I wanted to. Obviously, um, we put up one hell of a fight. Uh, the local establishment, um, the local GOP in where I live, uh, they not all of them, but a majority of them went with the polished, uh, polished guy who, unfortunately, I you know, I might even get shit for saying this, but I really don't care. Like. <laughs> Because it's it, it's something I even told him to me. I I did the right thing and I said, hey, congrats on the win, you know. And it looks like I was told now I need to endorse him. Now I need to, you know, maybe donate to his campaign. And I'm like, hold on a second, man. This guy took some horrible horrible hits. Like, okay, some ridiculous hits. Like you supported Bernie Sanders before. I'm like, where the fuck did that come from? I support Bernie Sanders. Like I work for charities. Like. If, if socialism gets in, you'll see charities just die out because who's going to donate when half their paycheck's going into the big government pot? Why would I support somebody like that, you know? Okay, that, that's just my political views, but I mean, this work I've been doing all this time, it would be all gone in my eyes anyway, right? Um, another one is, you know, they, they hit me on my modeling. I used to model uh, a few years ago. And like, so it's all silly stuff. So, but these, like, these are your opponents yes. of the Republican yep. side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, that's the thing. I don't get that either. Uh, and that, that's what's so sad with politics. I want politics, you know, political adverts to be like, Hey, this is, this is, you know, candidate X. Here's what they've done. Here's their, they were in the military. That's cool. Here's what they're going to do for the country. Here's, here's, you know, why they're passionate about this because their sister had this, but it's not. 
all we get is that guy's a wanker. He probably molests goats. Yep. You know? Absolutely. Now, there were six candidates total in the primaries, right? I ran a very clean campaign. I didn't fling any mud. People are throwing stuff in my life. There's another veteran in, in the in the run too, but his rap sheet. I mean, I look, man, I've, people are throwing stuff in my lap about this guy, mm-hmm. right? You know, beating his wife and he was out in Colorado and some bad blood when he was a police officer. And I'm like, I'm not sharing any of that shit. You guys could do what the hell you want, but I'm not, I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to fling mud. I'm not here to do any of that garbage. that's not who you want to be a leader. No, exactly. Exactly, James. Right there. I was like, I'm, that's just not who I am. And that was, it went very well. But the guy who won... Um, like I said, the establishment wasn't behind him. The problem is he hasn't lived in northeastern Pennsylvania in over 12 years. He still has Virginia license plates on his vehicle, right? And we look at history in our, uh, in our district. Last, last congressional election, the Republican candidate in the general election, he got creamed. He had all the money in the world, but he got creamed in a general election because um, he carpet bagged his way in. And nobody knew who he was, right? And this guy, well, he was born in northeastern Pennsylvania, but he hasn't lived here in so long. There's no relationship to the community. Uh, we're a majority of Democrats in the area. Um, and, you know, for a long, I, I didn't even say this for my campaign. My girlfriend's a Democrat, right? And I just think to myself, like, this could be a big, like, uh, if I publicly announced that, that would be harmful, right? But... I think when it comes down to who could sway these Democratic voters to vote for the person, not the party, I have that ability. Mm -hmm. I've been part of the community, you know. When it comes down to it, who could sway these Democratic voters, right? I'd be the one to do that. I mean, I've been involved in the community. I've been volunteering in the community. I've been public speaking for free in schools. My rule of thumb, I'm, you know, I'm a paid public speaker, but my rule of thumb is if um, if you're a school and you border the county I live in, I'm not going to charge you. Yeah. Like I think kids need to hear in the stuff that we talked about before. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important, right? So I've been a leader in this community so far. And this guy strolls in with all his money who bashed me for all this silly. He hit my fi- You know, like I said, he bashed my modeling. I'm going to laugh at you. You're Bernie Sanders. I'm going to laugh at you on that. When he hit my family, now I'm upset. Now I'm a little like, all right, dude. Right. So now all of a sudden these rest of these GOP wants me to endorse them. I'm like, look, I'm not a career politician. I'm not, there is no honor. You know, I'm going to look bad if I endorse you and the people who had my back throughout this, they're going to disrespect me if I do that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, you're going to look weak. You're exactly. going to look like a puppet. Yeah. I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, I'm sorry, man. I, it just, it's, it's uh, I can't do that. You know, well, what do you run for something else? I'm like, well, We'll cross that bridge if, if I even decide to do that. <laughs> like, I am not a career politician. One, I was asked to do this. Two, I, I did, I, you know, I educated myself a little bit. But there is such a divide in this country when it comes to Democrat, Republicans. You know, I think you said you, you lean on a libertarian side. I don't care what the third party is. I think we need a third party. Mm-hmm. I think we need something else to really balance it out. Because I think people are looking at each other right now, James. They're judging people who they voted for. And sometimes I feel like that. Like, I, I hate to say it. I think because of my hat was in the ring. When I drive somewhere and I see a Biden sign in the yard, my mind goes, 
what in God's name would you think Biden could provide for the people of this nation? Or is it because you just don't like Trump that much that you're going to vote for the other guy? See, and what I see when I see Trump and Biden or saw Clinton and Trump or, you know, whatever, is our system is so fucked up. That's what I see. Because neither of those two names should ever have been on those placards in the first place. It should have been two amazing Americans who are truly invested in this country and truly want to make things better that a majority, of course, no one's going to love everyone, respect and feel proud for that person wearing our flag and meeting international dignitaries and going to different countries and trying to minimize the chance of sending our men and women to their deaths. That's what I want to see. And that's not what we see. Like, my observation was... But when it was all the candidates for each side, I don't know a single person said they were going to vote for Trump or Clinton. And that was what we ended up with. And I'm looking around and going, hey, does anyone vote for either of these? So that's what you know worries me is like this whole system needs to be reinvented. And I've heard Joe Rogan talk about it. I'm not well versed in politics, but the system we use was pre-internet, pre-technology. Like you know, if it should be a vote for a vote now and... You know, clearly, whatever the reason, it's broken because we see corruption over and over and over and over again. And, you know, both sides, you know, like Hillary Clinton, obviously, she's got her horrendous unethical practices. And then I know Trump's history in New York working, you know, paying the people that built his buildings is completely fraudulent as well. So let's get two good human beings, two compassionate human beings. Let's let's look at healthcare in this country where our 80-year-olds aren't working in Walmart to pay their fucking health insurance. Let's address drug policy so we don't have homelessness and gangbangers and all this other shit going on. Well, there are nations around the world that are doing things so much better than us, and we have a beautiful country I'm very proud of, to be a part of. But let's drop the ego and start looking at New Zealand and Portugal and Norway and, and say, right world what are you doing better than us can, can, we, we, can learn? we copy that yeah yep i think we are a great nation but i think we do have a lot of learning to do you know um i absolutely you know um truly believe that we are one of the greater nations i no one's going to take that away from me i mean places that benefit a country but even other western nations i see how they do things differently even how they treat people like just uh on a cultural level you know what i mean yeah, yeah and that's a, what I'm saying. There's other countries that need to look to us for some areas too. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, we're we, a round yep. planet. There's no corners, so we should all be learning from each yeah. other. Yeah, there's some angry Americans out there, man. You know, mm-hmm. and they're there, but they're, that's the thing. They're angry Americans, so they lash out whether it's blue, red, whether it's Red Sox, Yankees, whatever. You know, and so you have to. We have to look at ourselves and go, why are we so fucking angry? Because, like you said, you shouldn't get triggered by a red hat. Or a blue sign or, you know, whatever. But And I, I hate being that way. And I think because I was involved in it for quite some time with all of this. Like, COVID destroyed my, my campaign, definitely. Like, I lost that ability to get in front of people. It came down to who had the most money, who was going to be on TV all the time. And that's, Facebook. I, to this day, that I get, that's when I keep saying that's what destroyed me. But, um, you know, locally, I think, uh, you know, I... Out of the five counties, I won two of them. You know, I I did fairly well out of the six candidates. You know, and and uh, I, I you know, of course, the next day I was disappointed, but a week later I was like, you know, what? I feel pretty good about that. You know, no, well, you did more than a lot of people can say they did. And you, and the thing is, 
you know, listening to your story, your heart's in the right place. And that's the other sad thing is that we see that. We see, I mean, I've loved, again, Joe Rogan getting Dan Crenshaw and Tulsi Gabbard and, you know, some of these other politicians and listening to Bernie. I fucking love listening to Bernie. I truly believe he's a good person. And I don't think he would steal all the rich people's money the way that he's been painted. But I think we need some Bernie-isms in our leadership to teach that kindness and compassion even if he's the wrong person someone's younger slightly more different but you know i think that we need kindness and compassion and we're not being you're and you're oh you're absolutely right i think but i i think this idea of of socialism in this country like i like the idea of a free market and you know we don't we don't need uh super millionaires or billionaires in the world and i, I remember bernie trying to tackle i can't remember his name he was trying to take a hit on a uh, the owner of Home Depot, like the, the CEO of Home Depot, like you have all this money, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And then he put out a list of who and how much he donated to. And it's like in the millions and millions. And then he just shot back. So Bernie, who did you donate to in the past? So and so. And he, there was nothing back. And I just worry about this idea. And it always seems like a good idea at the time. But it takes a bad leader to get in there. We look at Venezuela. I mean, it was it was good for a little while. And then look what's going on now. Cuba the same way. You know what I mean? That, and that's what I always worry about it. Like, you know, um, that idea that this, it just takes the wrong person to get that power. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, I mean, it does. But I think for me, if the goal comes from a kindness and compassion to take healthcare, a profit-based healthcare system, I mean, no one can argue this. There's only money in sick people. Dead people and healthy people aren't making them any money. It's completely backwards. Whatever system you choose to have, it needs to be a health-driven system. So what I like about the NHS back home, and people use the word socialism, that's an entire philosophy. I just like national health, for example, where we all is pay taxes. NH- you know, NHS, what is that? Uh, national health system. So we all pay taxes and healthcare is quote-unquote free. Obviously, we pay for it. but And so I'm 46, I haven't got a doctor I don't have, if someone asks me to write a doctor, you know, my doctor, I don't have one. So I have no problem contributing to taking care of the, you know, the young, the elderly, the infirm, because that's what being a member of a community does. And then one day if I get hit by a bus, then I'm going to need that, that too. But, you know, this, that's one thing that drives me crazy here is we're the most affluent country and yet we're one of the most unhealthy on the planet. And I think that a big part of that is because it's a profit-driven system. People don't want you to, feed your kids the way they're supposed to be fed in schools because now we've got nice little you know chronic disease med addicts for the rest of their very short lives you know that is the most un-american thing i can think of so to me an element of what some people might call socialism which is national health i think would be amazing but every time it's even presented it's acted like it's you know it's got a russian flag sticking out of it, you know? <laughs> but it's not it's coming from a kindness and compassion thing where no one the first the first thing that we should have in this country is healthcare for everyone that's just my thing mm-hmm. i see your point you know being that i'm a patient at the va like so my healthcare is free yeah like, and so is you know, the the medicaid so and yeah. so you know there's, the there's there's a lot of issues with the va like i'm also 36 years old i'm very healthy i don't use the va that much you know, I, I mean, I saw the dentist last week for my annual checkup and my teeth are perfect. They said, like, you're doing what, keep doing what you're doing. Like, I, I don't use it that much. However, I see the dangers in some of uh, 
Now, maybe it's a VA system, you know, to lean on your argument here, but I see the dangers of what uh, the issues may be. Like, I went in a few years ago for, I woke up at 2 in the morning with stomach pain, like horrible, horrible, horrible stomach pain. I went to the VA. I went to the ER doctor, and it just seemed like you're pushed through, you're pushed through, you're pushed through. And um, VA, uh, the doctor, they said I had an ulcer, so they gave me ulcer meds. So I went back home. Taking this also medication, I, I ran a 5K that weekend. Um, I'm still in this horrible pain. I'm and I'm still at this time. I was dating that nurse, though. Mm-hmm. You know, so she says, "Come to my hospital." You know, I'm like, "All right, fine." You know, I had a uh, oh my goodness, I can't remember what it is now. Not a spleen, so gallbladder, mm-hmm. and I, and the it says gangrene grotesque gallbladder. Oof, and they. And they looked at it with a scope after my surgery, and it was it was horrible. And I always thought, how do they mess that up? You know what I mean? Like I always thought, like how did the VA mess that up? And that's you know, and that's really not like I think that could have even happened in a regular hospital. Yeah, that's right? that that physician that, that screwed up, right? Yeah. But I'm hearing these horror stories uh, from some of my friends. We look at a in the VA hospital in uh, in Phoenix. They had the waiting list for. Uh, for uh, elderly patients of who's gonna who's gonna die soon you know what i mean and that's scary i always thought like um it's it is free health care but i th- i look at some of these wait times with some of these uh some of these patients like it's it, your wait time when it comes to mental health our counseling department at the va hospital in wilkesbury pennsylvania some of these guys are they're waiting like 35 40 days to see a counselor yeah which right? is which is completely unacceptable it, yeah it, and i and why is this taking so long why is this so and especially with the veteran we we all i mean we talked about it before those push-ups aren't going to do anything so uh now these people who are str- struggling mentally want to go see somebody they're trying to take care of themselves but you can't see somebody for you know two or three weeks yeah and if you're in crisis you know I mean? that's you know and i and i i feel like um maybe it's such a small percentage of the population where and i could go on with these other stories i'm i'm just grateful that i'm a healthy 36 year old and you know i've figured out life i don't know what life's going to be like when i'm older and i may need more care you know but it seems like this free it's you could call it socialism whatever but it there's a lot of repairs that need to happen within the VA where I'm thinking that this is such a small percentage of the United States that are using this care and it needs a lot of fixing to do. So let's put this on a nationwide level. Is it going to be the same way? Yeah. Now you, you know, see, I'm sorry. Go on. Well, and you know, some, I think some aspects that I, I think um, the current administration is uh, the, uh, the idea to choose who you see outside of the VA, which I think is good. So like basically, the doctor will give the bill to the VA and then they'll pay for it. Like, um, you know, I, I, I screwed up my back doing deadlifts last year and the VA helped paid for a chiropractor, which is five minutes from my house instead of going all the way to the VA, which, uh, they wanted me to go to somebody local near their facility because the VA doesn't have the inside of the VA doesn't have the facility of a chiropractor. So they were going to send me so much. So I actually pushed 
can I just go to somebody near where I live? You know, and they actually did that for me. So, which, you know, stuff like that I think is good. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, no, but that's, I think, what you'd see in the NHS. Just to paint the opposite picture from back home. And again, I think what people understand is, you know, you have, just like COVID, you have inner cities. Like London is going to be very different than rural Bath where I grew up. But where I grew up, which was NHS, my grandparents um, paid what they call BUPA. So they had an accessory private insurance which they paid until the insurance company basically priced them out where they couldn't even afford it. So they paid for you know, decades. And then when they actually started needing it, they couldn't afford it anymore. I mean, it was disgusting. Interesting. But NHS, my granddad got um, bladder cancer. The guy was amazing. He was 99, still used to work in his yard. I mean, still just did everything. Just was an amazing, amazing man. But he got riddled with cancer. And the NHS got... Um, home nurse visits they ended up putting a hospital bed in his room home doctor's visits um you know hospice was was enacted towards the very end even after he passed away they still visited my grandmother for about three weeks after that and that was all on the nhs so i tell people i saw better care there than i would see in the u.s in our system so it all depends on which story you listen to but that's what it can be that's my point if we actually get good management and, you know, and again, don't get me wrong, too many, too much government absolutely screws things up. We know that. But whatever that happy medium is between the two and then the prevention element, you know, I mean, the idea is of the mental health that we don't have too many mental health people because you've got, you know, the, you know, and then with, with chiropractic, I mean, prevention, you know, uh, right now we need more people eating well, we need more people going to gyms, doing CrossFit, whatever it is. So that our hospitals aren't slammed with morbidly obese men and women, you know. So that to me is it. But again, if it comes from kindness and compassion, that's going to be driven the prevention side. If it comes from profit, it's the complete opposite. We, you know, you got cancer, beautiful. That's going to cost millions, but I think we can help you at least for you'll be alive three more years. Your hair's going to fall out, you know, all this stuff. Chemotherapy, Mm -hmm. which is like a two billion dollars of annual business here in america yeah which is unfortunate man you know i i you know my tinfoil hat says i think that cures out there but yeah I, my, my tinfoil hat says chemo probably kills more people than cancer does oh absolutely you know i mean it's I mean? like a five percent rate to get rid of the cancer and then when you do get rid of it it usually comes back in a mm-hmm. decade anyway yeah so what good is it doing yeah versus you know? prevention absolutely versus stop spraying our food with chemicals you know, stop polluting our cities where these kids are growing up, breathing all this shit. You know, I mean, there's there's so much we can do. Cancer wasn't rife. And I understand there was a recognition, but it just wasn't. Obesity wasn't rife 100 years ago. You know, look at the old black and white pictures of yesteryear. Go to Ripley's, the world's biggest man. Yeah, like record-breaking obese man looks like half a it's Walmart. It's like norm now. now. It's yeah. the norm now. Yeah. So, and it's not. I'm not that. trying to shame or be a dick. But no, it's, you're absolutely it's right. And really you know, it's funny. My time in Europe, um, you don't see a lot of obese people. Actually, when I was in Germany training, um, when I was younger, and I'd go to the mall, and I'm in America, I'm a large. Over there, I'm an extra large. Mm-hmm. And I always saw that. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I'm a triple XL over there, probably. <laughs> now, I don't mean to go off subject. You said you're from rural Bath? Bath, yes. Get out of here. So I was in the UK for the first time, 2018, and went to London. I had to drive because I just want to know how it was drive on the other side of the road and the steering wheel over there. Mm-hmm. And I actually stopped in Bath. It's beautiful, isn't it? Oh, my god. Rolling goodness. hills. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, you know, 
and Lon- to me, London is just another New York City. It's like going to Chicago. It's going to Philadelphia. There's London. There's Munich. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's just another city full of tourists. Yeah. But going to Bath, where it's a little touristy, but it's not. But a majority of people around you are maybe from the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's I, countryside everywhere you can see. Oh my like you're goodness. in the city, but the hills are all around you mm-hmm. and it's green. And after that, I went to Cardiff. Oh, I went to a drama school in Cardiff for a year. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah, my, so my, that's where my ancestry is from. Okay. In, in uh, Cardiff. Brilliant. Yeah, so I was like, I got to go there, right? You know, but, it, you know, driving here in the States, you know, the slow lane is the right lane. Mm-hmm. So here I'm in the UK thinking it's the same thing because I'm driving real slow because I'm just so not used to driving in the right side of a vehicle yeah, the, steering wheel. The car is at half the wrong way. So where your steering wheel is, you expect the car to be, you know, to like you said, to your left and now it's to your right or vice versa. So. Yep. And I yeah. lived in D.C. So I got living in D.C. I got used to the circles, the drive circles, like for intersections. Yep. But doing that on the other side of the road and the other side of the car. Having to look the opposite I was, way. <laughs> I, I was scared shitless. Like, shit, like am, am I timing this right? This and that. Like, it took a long time to get used to. But driving... I being that I was brand new to driving a vehicle like this, I was driving on the road on the highway in this what I'm thinking is a slow lane, and these cars are just blaring past me, beeping the horn, beeping the horn, and like, fuck, am I in the fast? It's like fast lane driving twenty miles an hour slower than I should be, <laughs> man. And I was like, man, I'm having everybody giving them a bad day. <laughs> well, it's funny. I just finished writing the book. That's not a shameless plug, but one of the chapters is about that. And when you grow up in England, you the driving test is revered. And most people pass usually either side of about third, fourth try. I mean, it's it, really? it's hard, like super Get hard. Get out of here. And you have to take, I mean, you, you take lesson after lesson after lesson. I was lucky I grew up on a farm. So I drove a lot. Mm-hmm. Then I got to transition to our veterinary car that we had mm-hmm. um, and drove that a lot. Then I took a whole bunch of lessons as well. I I passed first time, but I was so well prepared from being a farm boy. I had the, you know, the advantage of a lot of people. But then when we passed, we then take more classes on how to drive on the motorway. And so when I came over here and took the Florida test and then became a fireman and saw how many deaths we have, that's another thing I think that we can look at is our test is too fucking easy. These 16 year olds don't barely do any practice, go in the DMV. Parallel park. Parallel park. And, and then drive around the block. Boom, not even parallel park. Drive into a parking space and then back out again. And that's it. Congratulations. <laughs> you passed. So, you know, that's another area where the first responder community see a huge amount of death and, you know, just awful, awful loss. I mean, as you drive, I don't know if you're going to go down 200 one way, you'll see a tree that's black. It's because a 17-year-old wrapped their car around that a few months ago. You know what I mean? So, and that's supposed to be a 30 as well. But that's another area where prevention like we're making the car safer, but I've been in this country almost 20 years and I haven't seen the driving test made any harder or, or re, you know, done in any way. They haven't even taught people how to drive on fucking roundabouts in this country. <laughs> no, you're so. absolutely right, man. <laughs> you know, the airport near where I live in Scranton, they built roundabouts a few years ago and they made such a big deal about it. Like the local radio station, KRZ, uh, one of the DJs got in the driver's seat recording. I don't know, it was like an intern or somebody driving to the airport and getting on those roundabouts and he was just recording her like what do i do what do i fucking do like how do i do this and it's just uh, it, it kind of blew my mind a little bit because 
being in Europe, I they they are a little common over there, and DC they're just everywhere. You know what I mean? So I I mean I, I feel like I'm used to it. Even um, North Carolina, quite a bit. Right in Fayetteville, I saw on Hope Mills Road there yesterday. They're they're everywhere, but it's unique that we look at it. Some Americans here like it's such a bad thing. They're used to the four way intersection, which in reality takes a lot of time. Yeah. Those roundabouts here, psh, it's you're flow. done. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Flow. You're not stopping. You know, yeah. if it's a yield, you're not even stopping at all. You're just going. Yep. You know, and it's if, I, if everyone's using their blinker and they actually have told you what they're going to do rather than you <laughs> get played Russian roulette and they go around. <laughs> so, what is the driver's test in the UK like? So, you, the, the written test is, I mean, we have the, the you know highway safety manual so you have to memorize that so the written test is on all the you know the stop signs and the you know the the, all the different signs i think we got a few more signs than we have here over there as well um just because we have more obscure things like humpback bridges and things but then your test is like a solid hour i would say if i'm remembering rightly but you're so you're you know obviously going um through the streets you're going around roundabouts you are parallel parking. You're reversing around a corner. You're stopping and starting on hills. I mean, there's there's a huge amount. So interesting. And, it, and it's but the thing is, the margin for error is almost zero. Or it was when I, you know, I mean, I'm 47. That's been almost 30 years, 46. Um, but uh, so you, I think, get like three minute mistakes that you can get away with. Anything that's even deemed even remotely dangerous that's an instant fail so that's what people get you can you can be like 85 percent awesome but you still fail so that's what i find but then as you probably saw when you drive over there like the roads are you know very narrow there's no medians or dividers you know the country roads around where i grew up they're one car wide so then they're winding so then you got to find a little lay-by that you pass each other it's one giant the roads, one giant city of Boston. That's what I thought. Did you ever drive up in Boston? I haven't driven up there. No, it's so there is like New York City's a grid, Washington DC is a grid, like the way this the roads are lined up. And Boston is is like like driving a bath. Yeah. I remember like it's it is windy, one lane roads. Um, you know, it's that's what I thought of when I was in Bath. Mm-hmm. Like, well the other thing is a stick shift. There's hardly any automatics in England, too. I well, it's funny you say that. I can't drive a stick anymore, so I had to. It took me. It was pretty hard to find an automatic, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't. I'm so used to after like it's been 12 years since I lost my leg. I'm so used to it. I don't really miss it at all. But I miss driving a stick. So, yeah. So it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah. Well, I remember going on a call in the in the U.S. here in Orlando, and it was a drunk driver. And PD removed him from the car, and I shit you not, no one on scene could drive stick. And so uh, they were like, hey, can anyone drive stick? And I was like, yeah, can't you? <laughs> but again, I, I forget, I'm from another country, and like you said, if automatic's all you had, I'm not looking down, but that's another another layer of it's difficulty. It's always, a, you know, it's one of those things, it's a skill. You don't need it, but it's good to know, because mm-hmm. you never know when you're in that situation. Yeah. I remember reading a story once, this, uh, these two kids, they, uh, you know, I don't want to say kids, but they're young adults. They get, uh, one get attacked by a bear. So the other, uh, guy, uh, you know, got his body out of there, uh, put him in the back of his truck, uh, cause the guy who got attacked 
they took his vehicle. Right. When the guy, the other guy who carried him, put him in the, the bed of his truck to take him to the hospital was his stick. And he, you know, had to learn on the fly what to do. And, you know, and we're talking about life or death and situations like that. So yeah. it's always one of those things. It's just good to know. You don't have to own a stick shift, but you should always know how to drive it. Yeah. No, exactly. I think that's it. So, so there's definitely a potential for the bar to be raised on a prevention side. You know, if, if, if people are really taught at a much higher level and really also taught how fucking dangerous it is to operate a car, you know, that there would be more care that you'd use your, your indicator, your blinker, because you're being kind. You're saying, Hey, car behind me, this is what I'm about to do. You wouldn't ride the ass of someone because God forbid they have to slam on the brakes. Because a kid walks out in front of him, now you rear end that car and drive that front one over the child just because you're a piece of shit and you can't even leave some space. You know, I mean, that's, I think, what we, there seems to be this absence of understanding why these road safety things are in there. Now, do I think that if you do 77 in a 70 on a freeway that everyone's going to die? No. But I just threw my hands up at a car today, flying down my 25 mile an hour road at about 40 where there's a child in every single house, young children. So all it takes is one kid to run out of a driveway or get away from their parents' hand. At 25, you could probably stop. At 40, you're going to cream that kid. You know what I mean? So that's my, my thing as a first responder, seeing so many deaths over and over and over again is that's a very easy way that we could raise the bar there too. No, it's interesting too. I, I feel uh, when you look at law enforcement, we look at military, it's always going to fight the bad guy. But I feel like in your line of work or even EMT, you're looking at some very gruesome stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. Where I feel like maybe somebody in the military, you're causing the gruesome. I know that sounds weird, but no, like it's true. It's know, true. It's it's whether you're you're for it or against it, that's the reality of it. You are killing people. You know, in certain situations, and that's law what, enforcement, maybe you know, God forbid, nobody. I don't, I don't give a fuck who you are. These guys are like in the military, like oh, can't wait to go kill these fuckers. Like, no, you don't, man. No, nobody wants to do that. Like, I heard really? Dakota Mayer say exactly the same thing the other day. What's that? Dakota Mayer, he's a Marine. Um, oh yeah, Medal Dakota, of Honor. Yeah, yep. Um, he said exactly the same thing. He said, you know, this, uh, this false machismo that you want to go out there. He said, no one dreams of going into combat and taking their life especially if they might die in the process but no one so yeah all right well i think that uh this would be a good time to kind of transition so if people want to reach out to you and then also take this time as well as talk about um the uh the non-profits that you sure like to advocate for mm -hmm. where's the best place to find you and them so the charities that i'm a part of is a uh, uh, Operation Enduring Warrior. You can find us at uh, EnduringWarrior.org. We have social media, just uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. That's Operation Enduring Warrior. Our mission is to honor, empower, and motivate our wounded and disabled veterans and law enforcement continue to live an acts of lifestyle, not let their injuries define who they are. And what I think we don't discuss, which I think is very important, and you and I discuss being a part of a team once again, something that I think we value when we wore that uniform, and now we can do that once again. Whether you're an honoree, an adaptive athlete, or you want to become a mass athlete. Uh, another one is the Oscar Mike Foundation. So, Oscar Mike is just slogan for 
on the move. And our mission is simply that, keeping our wounded and disabled veterans on the move, not letting their injuries define who they are. We have programs, uh, Team Oscar Mike, which is we help uh, wounded veterans uh, run through Spartan races or smaller OCRs. We have a wheelchair rugby team called the Oscar Mike Militia. And we also have what's called the Oscar Mike Compound, where we send uh, guys and girls with their respected injuries a week to Illinois, and we put them through a rehabilitation. We take them skydiving. We uh, actually teach them how to fly a plane, a very small plane, in Poplar Grove, Illinois. Um We uh, teach them how to food prep, eat healthy, and uh, yeah, very wonderful organization. We also have uh, apparel all made in America. Check us out, oscarmike.org, and check out our social media. Our marathons, I run marathons with the Achilles Freedom Team. You can see the pro what we're doing here. Everything seems to be athletics. That's what I, that's my, what I love to do. I'm, I'm not a team member of Achilles. I'm just one of their athletes and we run marathons. We run and hand bike marathons. We even do a push wheelchair, we, uh, push rim wheelchair of marathons. We do Chicago, New York, Boston, Los Angeles. Um, I believe it's Miami. Detroit. Come check us out. Uh, wonderful, wonderful. Bring your family along as well. Uh, we could, they could, uh, maybe, uh, uh, your loved one, one of your loved ones can run with you. Uh, wonderful organization. Check us out at Achilles International. I'm a part of the Achilles Freedom Chief Team chapter, which is, uh, wounded and disabled veterans. And. I believe that's it. And then what about you personally? How do people find Oh, how to find me? You. Yeah, I guess that's important. <laughs> oh, you know what? Check out the Give team too. We talked a lot about them. Yes. Look, the Give team I do not know the mission team state the the mission statement of the Give team, but I'm going to tell you something right now. The Give team is doing God's work. I'm um I what Bradley Mason is doing for the community of Orlando is by far amazing. You want to make a donation, check them out and see that's you, you feel it's a donating too, but these kids lives are being changed. Check out the give team, ladies and gentlemen. And if you would like to get a hold of me, my email is earl.grandville at gmail.com. That's E A R L dot G R A N V I L L E at Gmail. And my Instagram handle is just that Earl Granville. Check me out. If you have any questions, um, by all means, if you need someone to just even chat with me, um, I'm all ears. Um, or if you have any ideas or any questions at all, any organizations I, I talked about, um, please, by all means, I'd love to hear from you. Um, James, thanks again for having me, dude. Well, I was going to say that. Thank you. You drove from Pennsylvania to come down here. Um, you know, it's, I agree 100% doing it face to face is, you know, the most pertinent way of doing these. And I love it when we're able to make that happen. So thank you. Absolutely. You know, I've done quite a few of these and I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why I was excited to get down here. And I, I know there's a hiccup on the schedule, but um, I appreciate your patience. 